And now, here they are, the most daredevil group of daffy writers to ever bump their gums in the wacky podcasts, competing for the title of the world's wackiest podcaster. The articles are approaching the editing stage. First is the Isle of Sky interview conducted with Fiona Allen. Next, Terry Malloy and Jenny in the convention foyer. Maneuvering for position is the John Chalice special. Right behind is the written archives mob with their bulletproof facts. And there's ingenious painter Martin Holmes with his converted logos. Oh, and here's the lovely Lisa Parker, the glamour gal of gassing on the sofa. Next, we have the wife in space team with the Perryman spouses, Neil and Sue. Lurching along is Michael Seeley with a Camfield biography, and right on their tail is Paul Ebbs. And there's the Salisbury chatting crew with Nick and Shayetti. Sneaking along last is that How article with those tone-deaf non-singers, Andrew Trowbridge and his sidekick Warren. And even now they're up to some dirty jokes, and they're off to an instant outtake. And why not? They've been deleted by accident by shifty Andrew Trowbridge, who's talked into the wrong microphone. And away they go, on the way out round the archives! Spring, Caucasian, British, 41 years old, a traditionalist, dislikes computers and high technology in a world of dramatic change. Nathan Spring is a policeman on a new frontier, 40 years from now. Star cops. By the early 21st century, humanity is spilling into space. Colonists are misfits, adventurers, criminals. There is. Yes. Just look where he is heading. On Earth, on the moon, in the space between, the star cops tread a delicate political knife edge in the cause of justice. Do you know what you've done? Yes, I know exactly what I have done. I've just had a man executed. Just 40 steps down the road of time. Star cops. Next Monday at 8.30 on BBC Two. Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 26. Of Round the Archives. That's right. Yes. Um, a couple of things just to clear up from last time. Yes. Um, the actor that Warren was trying to remember, who was Australian, mm -hmm. uh, was Charles... Bud Tingwell. That's right. Who's in the first season of Catweasel. That's right. And uh, Emergency World Turn. That's true. Um, but a couple of... Bits and pieces from um, the Jack the Ripper piece. Mm -hmm. And 1973 is, of course, 85 years. Yes, we couldn't add up. 75 no. years. Um, but never mind that. But the most interesting thing is the studio sessions for the second half of sort of the recording. Yes. Um, from about episode three or four onwards, it's not mm -hmm. quite clear. Um, it was recorded in BBC Scotland. Yes. So it was rehearsed at the Acton Hilton and mm -hmm. everybody had to get on a train to go to Edinburgh. That's a big cast. Unless that stuff was just the um, Stratford John's Frank Windsor bits. Well, I don't, I don't know. But I mean, I've, the, got, uh, I've got the studio dates here and the studio mm. dates run from uh, 26th of May 1973 for the first session up to the 24th of July. Mm -hmm. So it's a fairly, fairly mm. long session. So I, I don't know. You know what what was what was where 
but it's just interesting and as as far as we can tell there was just no studio available in london no there was a strike around april may 73 mm-hmm. so other things might have taken the slots yes so yes. yeah but that's an interesting one mm-hmm. anyway uh episode 26 around the archive sees the start of season three doesn't it it does and so in true William Hartnell fashion for season three, I'm going to go on holiday now. Are you? Yes. Okay. So um, I'll leave the next article to you and Warren. Okay. So what are you going to talk about? We're going to talk about the 1988 drama miniseries Jack the Ripper starring Michael Caine. here to talk about the 1988 ITV production of Jack the Ripper. And Lisa is there. Hello, um, Lisa. Hello, Warren. Hello, Lisa. Andrew's not going to take part in this one because he's decided that it's, it's down to us. Yes. Yeah. It wasn't his cup of char, was it? No, no. So, this was shown over two weeks on the 11th of October and the 18th of October, 1988. Yeah, and we say it's in two parts it's rather than two, across yes. two weeks. Yeah, yeah it's in, and on those nights, it's shown from 9 till 10 mm-hmm. and 10.35 to 11.25. Yeah. So if you if you wanted to see it, you've got to stay up late. Yeah, and considering some of the gory content. Yeah, and probably get completely <laughs> freaked out by yes. what's happening. Yeah, you wouldn't yes. want to turn the lights off, really, would you? No, no. But originally, it because, of course, this stars Michael Caine, Originally, it didn't star Michael Caine. It no, starred it Barry yeah. Foster. Yeah, him of uh, Val de Vol. Van der Valk fame. F- fame. 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 And, um, you know, fame about it. <laughs> uh, CBS decided they'd put some money into it and they said, no, we don't want Barry Foster. He's not a big yeah. enough star. So they paid off most of the cast and crew and remounted it yeah. with extra money, extra scenes, extra, extra lighting. Extra lighting. Um, <laughs> With Michael Caine to drawing an, an international audience. Yeah, um, it's a Houston Films production, which is the film arm of Thames Television. Yes. Which started off making the first thing they ever made was uh, Special Branch in the mm-hmm. early seventies. Yeah. And they branched out at this stage of uh, Houston Films. They were making classic films like Minder on the Orient Express. <laughs> but, so this is quite a stretch for them, really. It is. I think this is quite. <laughs> I'd like to say uh, that they are running at full stretch on this, mm-hmm. 
but like with all large productions and if you know the historical period mm. um, you can look at things a bit too deeply sometimes yes. I think yes. and we will say some errors may have been made yeah. in the making of the production yeah. Um, yeah. and yeah. It's, it's a very glossy production it's done on film very glossy which makes very. it look very nice mm-hmm. and has enabled um, a Network to release it on Blu-ray yeah so it looks very good but in some ways, it's made you look at it from a distance. Yes, because it is on film. I said, uh, I think I said to you the other night, it's a, it was how I would say how ITC would have produced it. Yes, under Lou Grade, mm-hmm. that's how they would produce, uh, um, project how London of then is and looks like. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah. if you're looking at it in an international market, if you make it dark and you make it grim. Mm. People, especially in, in that particular time in the eighties, people are not going to no. uh, identify and want to watch watch something that looks that dark and grim. Considering the subject matter is yes, pretty horrific, it's pretty isn't horrific. It? Yes, yeah, and I think as well um, that they probably would have rewritten it as well because um, you've got uh, uh, an American actor, Armand Osante, I think you say it, you. as <laughs> thank you, playing um, the actor Richard Macefield, yeah, who was playing Jekyll and Hyde at the time. So do you do you think that would have been uh, I think that's, a stipulation that's, yes. from them? Um, that yeah, he CBS, and so. Jane Seymour are being stipulated yeah. by the American, by CBS, to give it a broader um, stroke, a broader yeah. appeal, I okay. think. so. But we have to say here, some, there's some pretty good British stalwarts in this, isn't there? There is, there is. And Putting Michael Caine aside for the moment... Who's the best thing in the film? I think it's Lewis Collins. I think it's Lewis Collins yes. as well. He's playing now, it completely straight. Now, Lewis Collins is known as um, Bodie in The Professionals. He is, yeah. Um, that's, it wouldn't be unfair to say that was not exactly a deep character. No. Um, no. I mean, because he'd done comedy portrayal. as well, because he was in, I think it's The Cuckoo Waltz. Was he? In, yes. Oh, right. He yeah. was in an episode of Z Cars I saw the other yeah. day as well. Yeah, so... Um, but the next film he would have gone on to have done would have been um, Who Who's Dares Wins, wouldn't he, where he played... Uh, that's that's after The Professionals, isn't it? That's earlier in the 80s, right. I think. Yeah. yeah, and that was yeah. A, the SAS that's, film. Yeah, it's pretty much the same character he plays in The yeah, Professionals. Yeah, it is pretty. Yeah. So this is quite a change to a certain extent. And it the is. way he plays it is... Very good. He is. He's your sort of down to earth, honest to God policeman. Yeah. Who'd want you'd want on your side if you you'd had trying a problem. Trying to make sense of the whole situation. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he's very level. He's not shouty, is he? No, no. Michael Caine's a bit shouty. Michael Caine is very shouty yes. in, in, in a Michael Caine way. In a Michael Caine way. But maybe yeah. if you've got Michael Caine, that's what you want Michael Caine to do. Yeah, that's what they're expecting from Michael Caine. We've just it? said Michael Caine far too many times. I well. know, we haven't. We? <laughs> um, it also stars... Does uh, Michael Caine then suddenly appear with the yes, um, Omen? <laughs> um, it also stars... Uh, Edward Judd. I love Edward in Judd. In his last part. Yeah, Edward Which is Judd. possibly slightly unfortunate. Yes. Since I, he's had a very sterling career before yeah, that. Yeah, I, I mean, his first part being in in the, uh, the the Day the Earth Caught Fire. Mm-hmm. That's a brilliant film. Yeah. Brian. Uh, Leo, Leo McKern's in that. Oh, right, okay. Excellent film. Mm-hmm. Worth seeing that one. Okay. Yeah, uh, he, he always gives good copy. Yes. Yes, and we've also got um, Hugh Fraser. Yes. the police commissioner Sir Charles Warren Charles Warren who, yeah. who wasn't to your liking in this film no um, he was very 
cafe, I would mm. use the term, whereas Charles Warren was a very strict disciplinarian. He was he an was, autocrat. Yes, he was a nasty mm. man. Mm. He had a military background, and as you you were discussing earlier, that he sent the troops in, which caused yep. a massacre in Trafalgar Square. Yeah, the year before, in 1997. Yeah. yeah, but this one seems very weak and no backbone. And yeah. Wanting to hand his resignation yeah. in, he would yeah. never have done no, that. No, he was absolutely—he was forced out, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yes. Um, we also have, obviously, we've mentioned Jane Seymour. She plays Michael Caine's love interest. Yes. Now we have to say, at this point, with a large bustle, with a large bustle, there are some historical inaccuracies in this film. One of these being that Michael um, Michael Caine's character, Inspector Abilene, was actually married at this oh. point. So there is no room for romantic interests. Right. So, because he was already married, he was living in um, either a commercial road police station or in a lodging house. Was he a drinker, point. though? Nobody can actually tell you that mm. because nobody was there. Because Abilene's character in this, he's an alcoholic. Yeah, I. I, I a functioning alcoholic, but. Yeah, I, I know um, a lot of police officers were alcoholics then, and yeah. the Met lost the first three ever warrant numbers. Yes, who were sacked for drinking on drinking duty. On duty yeah. uh, and alcohol is more prevalent then than perhaps it is now. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. He definitely wouldn't have drunk scotch. He wouldn't Possibly have been not. It would have been probably too expensive. Yeah, gin yeah. I would have said. Yeah. yeah. So and, and we've also obviously got um, people, sort of all your regulars that turn up in these sort of things. Yeah. So you've got uh, George Sweeney. You've got playing a nasty piece of work. Playing a nasty as piece usual, of work. Yeah. big teeth. He's got huge teeth. He's massive how big his teeth are. Yes. Uh, Ray McAnally's in it. Yes. Harry Andrews. Again, it was Harry Andrews' last part. Oh yes, yes. He died shortly after. He did. Yeah. He did. And on the uh, playing um, two of the prostitutes. Ones, the ones you get to know, the early ones you don't really see that much. No, they're not they featured. Die they die very quickly. Yeah. But you get Lizette. Anthony mm-hmm. playing Mary Kelly with an Irish accent, which yeah. again is not necessarily right because although Mary Kelly was born in Ireland, she grew up in Wales, mm. so she may well have had a Welsh accent. That's lovely. Yes, and you get uh, Susan George as Catherine Eddowes. Weird casting. Yes, I thought it's that a bit. Was. She's a bit wasted, really. Yeah. Yeah. She's quite a big name over she here, is. isn't she? She is. She did. Pe- but she maybe pro- she just needed the money. Yes. Yes. Uh, and then you go, uh, and there's a lot of. Um, Overdubbing, we know. Yes, as there well. was a lot of overdubbing. Whereas they couldn't get the boom mic in close enough to yeah. pick up people's um, when they were t- doing it on location or mm. wherever. Some of it might have actually been studio because it's it's the way it's shot. You can't tell if it's outside or not, yeah. can you? So, as a draw, mm. would you say in an audience from the nineteen eighties? Yes. Well, we would have been when yes. we originally watched this because I can remember like yourself. Yeah, I think everything. I did see it at the time. I don't know if I saw the second the bits after the news yeah. though because I would have had to go to school the next day. Did you Did you enjoy watching it? Um, I think I did at the time. Hmm. I don't know if I could say I enjoyed watching it quite so much now. So why would that be? Would you say? Because uh, I think they've overplayed their hand a little too much. It's Ooh, a like bit um, overly dramatic. Yes. Or melodramatic. Melodramatic, yeah. Uh, it's a bit heavy-handed because mm-hmm. um, there are several parts where they they're discussing who they think the murderer is, and at one point they say there's two of them and they've got a couch, and they say this three times. They're ladling. They got they a ladle. Are. There's yes. somebody ladling it down onto them like just, soup. Yes, just to make the point that there's two of them and they've got a couch. <laughs> It's like, I think we got that after the first time. It was the wonderful scene in part two where he's mm. got his notebook out and mm. they're writing down just to remind the audience mm. 
who the suspects are. Yes. He's going literally through every yeah, major in character the in the cast, yeah. Yeah. which is quite good fun. But right. it was to remind you they're still in they're there. They're still there. Yeah. And I should say as well, um, Ken Bones is in it, who was in um, Doctor Who recently, okay. playing one of the Gallifreyan generals. Mm-hmm. And after we watched the first episode, Andrew said to me, which one was Ken Bones then? And he's because he plays Robert Lees, who was the he wasn't the Queen's psychic, but he had done psychic readings for the Queen. Um, and you, you didn't, he didn't, you didn't recognise him because he's got hair in it. I don't think it's his own hair. I'm not sure whose hair it is, but no. uh, he he plays a very interesting character. He does with his background. Yeah. yeah. Um, he he has these visions. Yes. Uh, they're very dramatically shown on screen aren't mm-hmm. they with the, the they, they, they do it with the wheels of a carriage two yes. wheels and then a sort of snarling face angry face yeah isn't it? yeah yeah and then when it comes to this the second part it's not quite you never see his vision no. he just goes into some kind of yeah. um state of shock doesn't mm-hmm. he and that is one thing you say because he's in his, in his vision because he has a vision of the murder of mary jane kelly mm. he says that she's got long fair hair and she, and the, they've given her red hair yeah. in it but she did have fair hair so like again that's another thing they didn't quite get right um but i think that was to mislead because there is another prostitute that has long blonde hair and maybe they're trying to throw the jeopardy off the there scent. and yeah and it was yeah. her first night and yes. you're thinking yeah dead yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like the like the rookie officer in in, in oh, an i've done so and sort hey today yeah. chat this is my last one before yeah. i go back for two weeks dead yeah and go back and see the see the the you know the Seen pregnant later, wife yes. or whatever I'm expecting yeah. yes yeah. um i think the intentions were mixed up with artistic um presentation mm-hmm. and i think i could imagine there's a lot of pressure because of the money coming from another yeah, source they want to make it look uh, you yeah. know as good as they can but i think they've oversimplified some of the elements of it yeah um Yes, and it's a it's a little heavy on trivia mm. as opposed to actually checking their history. Yes, because yes. it was because um, the biggest piece the biggest piece of historical inaccuracy is Adeline himself. Yeah, because he at one point he says he grew up amongst these people in Whitechapel, and he didn't because he was no. born in Blandford. Yeah, as we've said before, and his father was a blacksmith, though. Yeah, okay, they got that, that, that bit right. They got that bit right. Okay, that's like one bit they got right. Yeah, but. If you're sending this to an international market, the most iconic place in Britain is going to be London, isn't it? Yes. So they're going to... Mm. uh, There are good production standards in the fact that they've spent a lot of money to make it lavish. (laughs) Lavish. (laughs) Lavish. Lavish. However, we have the issue that we have with a lot of programmes like Doctor Who in the 80s. They've cranked up the lighting yeah. to an yeah. unbelievable silly standard. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're looking at rooms that are gaslit, that's so bright. Mm. Yes. But everybody is taking it seriously. They are taking it seriously, yeah. yeah they're I, convinced by the parts they're playing. They I would say John Lorimore is a little pantomime villainish in his, his part because he plays a character called Inspector Pr- Spratling, yes. who's, who's sort of, sort of Abilene's nemesis in that he doesn't like him because he's, he's come in to investigate it and he's, he's disrupting his police station and 
all of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, we, and we also, after we watched the first episode last week, I sent you an, a message and asked you a question, didn't I, which was about the um, sergeant at the police station, Sergeant four Kirby. Stripes. He's got four stripes. And why would that be? He's senior sergeant. Okay. So, he can probably read and write. Okay. <laughs> is that all it is? No, no. He's, he's, no, no, no. They can all read and write. Well, just about. Uh, but four stripes means okay. he's senior sergeant. So does that technically make him... Um, higher in rank than Godley who is who is the sergeant that Lewis ah, Collins plays now there was great rivalry between the detective branch because the detective branch is fairly new yeah uh, but the detective branch all ran out of Scotland Yard mm-hmm. so Scotland Yard if you said you came from Scotland Yard people jumped up and, oh right okay so yeah. it makes you that just being at Scotland Yard makes you you're of a higher big, importance you're with the big bosses right. yeah okay but um there, there are little idiosyncrasies like the um, perhaps miscasting. I think the intentions were good. Yes, uh, I can well. see why they is, would get Michael Caine because he's yeah. a big name. And um, Michael Caine hasn't done TV. No, for goodness knows how no. long. And he would uh, the year after he did another film with Houston Films um, of Jekyll and Hyde. Did he? Yes. Oh, right. Okay. So. So you know, he obviously they he obviously enjoyed it enough, or they paid him enough money to do it again, one well, or the other. The, the, what was it you were looking at the um, appreciation on MI? Yeah, and he got quite high appreciation. Yeah, it got sort of almost around eight out of ten. Yeah. So I can see that it's gone down well. As long as they don't take that as being the story as being gospel. No, no, because there are other versions that. Hmm. Well, there's a 1973 version, which is probably which is the Barlow one, which we talked yeah. about. We talked about on the last issue, yeah. um, which is probably truer to life mm-hmm. in some ways. In the fact, it's dimly lit. It's all a bit grubby and grimy and and unsavoury. Well, it looks a, a bit word, too nice, I think. Yes, as you said, there's no there's no horse dung on the ground. Yeah, there's nobody shoveling stuff. And, no. Yeah. Right. Well, the horses obviously don't poo on the streets at this point. No. In this film, <laughs> so there's probably some unfortunate stagehand walking behind the carriages, going, "Oh God!" Oh, the rhubarb's going to be seventy <laughs> yeah. foot high in my yes. car. Um, yeah. yeah. No, the 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 comparisons are, are quite odd, aren't they? And I would say that the the, the scene in the 1973 version, uh, that, as I say, which we talked about on the last issue, of Catherine Eddowes walking on the street is much better is better shot yeah. than anything in this film because there's the scene in this in the first episode where Robert Lee's is, is he crossing the road or whatever he's doing and he go he gets halfway across the road and he sees a carriage coming towards him and he just stands there while this carriage and it's it's quite a way up it must be at least ten yards or more away from him and he stands there and waits for it for him to run him <laughs> over. And and I think really um, it, there should have been a jump cut in there somewhere yeah. so that when he saw it, it was much closer to him, so he wouldn't have had a chance because he had he had more than enough time. I was actually shouting at the screen at this point, "Why don't you just run out of the way? <laughs> Step out of the Step way! Step out of the way! You could just stroll yeah. out of the way." Just to throw something in here, yeah. talking about uh, sinister scenes, mm-hmm. and this is not to do with what we've just seen, but it is from another Ripper film. You've just had arrived today. The Christopher Plummer film. Yes, Murder by Decree. Murder by Decree. Which follows much the same storyline as this one. Yeah. You'll find it very, very um, darker than Mm. you've seen on the the Houston. 
uh, and you're saying about shots of following people, mm-hmm. there is one particular shot of one of the murder victims, and I'm not going to tell you which which one it is, where physically it gives the impression that the Ripper is running across the road towards them, and it's oh. got a, a nasty death scene. Um, mm. And that's quite interesting, because you're talking about you were talking about you felt uncomfortable I felt uncomfortable watching the one in the 1973 one you'll feel uncomfortable watching this one as well Um, and it's just interesting how those two will compare so Mm. but what would you give this out of 10 I would probably give it a 7 I think sort of Mm. solid yeah it's not exceptional no mass produced not mass produced just just Easy to watch. Easy to well, sometimes. You well, very long episodes. If you're switching on and you want something on the telly, yeah, yeah, yeah. probably not background. No, it's definitely not background. <laughs> not for the no, kids. No, it's definitely not for the kids. No, I mean, I there no. was one point when I felt a little uncomfortable. I put my in, kids in front of it. So I want to scare the jeepers out of them. Yeah, there was one point in this where I felt uncomfortable watching it, and that was the scene with Mary Kelly in her room. When, he, when you get the scene of the bag and the knife comes out. Yeah. And I just felt a little uncomfortable then, but there was nowhere near the tension that you've had in, in previous uh, films. You've just so, reminded me of something, of watching the original transmission. Yeah. I knew it was coming up. Mm-hmm. But uh, when Mary Kelly's been murdered yeah. and the debt collector comes around. Oh, right, yeah. And I remember that. And I remember... Um, I thought I saw a lot more, and this is where memory, mm. or when you watch something, you try to add more. Because I'd actually seen the seen photographs the, the that photographs, still exist, yeah, yeah. and so when he looks through the crack, I thought I saw more mm. in the clip. When I when I've watched it before and I've stopped and checked, I haven't. Mm. And it's interesting how the the, the, the memory the, cheats. The memory you. cheats yeah. with that one, yeah. yeah. And it was nice at that point that when they come out of the room, that they everybody looks shocked and shattered oh, i mean lewis yeah. collins's character uh, godly when he comes out his eye man, yeah his it? eyes are red it looks like he's been crying i mean obviously you can do that with there's a tear stick yeah. thing but even kane is sort yeah, of yeah he blank. just yeah he just that everybody looks which is right so that is one Every, bit where they've got it right and, yeah 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 there's a definite so, out, uh, atmosphere of this oh, uh, has gone beyond yes yes and it's very disturbing mm. and and i give it a six out of ten okay so if we give it an average of six and a half, I'll go with then, that. Yeah, um, it is available on DVD and Blu-ray. And yes. if you're interested in this subject or any of the actors, then we'd say give it a go. But um, just be warned that they are quite long episodes. Very long so, episodes. Yeah, you know, the Red Cross were dropping us food parcels, <laughs> weren't they? So, but yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, production and um yeah. now we've watched it we never have, have to watch it again no it's just an interesting take on a, a theme it is it? so and we'll be looking at um another variation on the jack the ripper legend in Whitechapel well, for like the Whitechapel. next issue do you like Whitechapel? I, I, I do quite like it yes it's yeah. got steve pemberton in, in a hat isn't it yeah in a yeah. hat yeah in a hat. what more do you need anything more he's an eccentric <laughs>
Right, we're here again. We've just watched the um, 20 or so minutes of footage of the original Barry Foster version of Jack the Ripper. So we're just going to uh, share our thoughts on this version and what we thought of it. Well, I, I'm going to chip in here as yes, well. Yes, and Andrew's going to chip in here. To be honest, that didn't feel like 20 minutes. No. <laughs> no, that flew no. by, didn't it? It yeah. did. Unlike the two-hour um, episodes mm-hmm. that felt very long, mm-hmm. uh, what I've just seen flew, absolutely flew by. But I feel I've got we've got a lot more to say about it, which yes. is weird. Yeah. Yes. But Warren, what did you make of that? Is that... I would sit down and I wanted to see the whole thing. Mm. Yeah, I would have liked to see the whole thing. I, I actually really wish that that CBS hadn't got involved yeah. and they'd made the original version with Barry Foster mm. and that we'd just sat and watched that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, this is a really interesting lost production. Mm. Yeah. Um, because I said to you, I almost see this as being a six half-hour episode thing, almost like a sort of Sunday classics thing. Um, on sort of BBC <laughs> One. I, I imagine... uh, no, not by Barry Letts. I, mean, I know Barry Letts, maybe it's not maybe his thing. Yeah. Um, but it really sort of emphasised to me and sort of rammed home how much I like multi-camera videotape stuff. And no matter how much money you chuck at big film productions, they're not necessarily better. Mm-hmm. No. Because no. to me... The reason I didn't want to get involved in the talking about the, the film production is that I felt very distanced from it. And I was sitting there going, well, looking at me watch and going, well, this isn't this isn't particularly interesting. Whereas what we've seen here, yes, it's all very rough and you've got time code all over it and you've got production people coming in with clipboards and things like Ducking that. Ducking out the way the camera... But what really interested me was there's a lot of raw material here that if it's edited right would be really, really interesting, I think. And again, it's that thing about videotape puts the emphasis on the the actors are the people who are in control in Mm -hmm. in this, aren't they? Yeah. And it's not a director's medium. No. Um, And it just feels more real to me. Well, there's the one particular scene uh, when uh, Ampeline's uh, in the cells with John Netley, the coachman, mm. and he's roughing him up a bit. And there's a scene where he's he's pushed him onto the bed in the cell, and your the camera is so close right over his shoulder, to him isn't it? Yeah. that it makes you feel like you're standing there next to him. Mm. Whereas in the film version, it's a bit more pulled back. Yeah. So you're more, as you say, more distant. The other thing's the lighting, isn't it? Yes, it's the, much darker. It's much darker, gives an atmosphere of more darker claustrophobia. Uh, and as you say, it's not lavish. It doesn't appear lavish. So you, you, if it's more lavish it is, the more disconnected you become with it, the more centralised it becomes, slightly darker and grimier. You can you can identify it with it, can't you? I mean, it's, it's interesting because we've started doing a lot of stuff on our youtube channel Mm -hmm. and of course we shoot it on a sort of an old video camera that's it's 10 years old now yeah um but it it's that immediacy Mm -hmm. that i think if you're watching it you feel that you're in the room with us and this is what i'm getting here with what survives of this production Mm -hmm. that it does feel 
more like you're actually there with with the actors that you're one of the policemen in the in the briefing yeah you're yeah. in the room with them yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. whereas yeah you, you can you can spend 10 times the money but does that necessarily uh, make it any better and i'm not sure it does yeah. and i also think that barry foster actually makes a better abalone i mean you were saying about michael Caine's accent yes and this what sort of accent do you think he's doing is i'm not sure he's even sure to be honest <laughs> it's a bit all over the place yeah. it's a hybrid but then again yeah. would abalone had a hybrid accent he would have had a West Country accent. He'd spent time in London, in different areas of London where there's mm. international flavours anyway. So you become a natural mimic being a human anyway. Yeah. Mm. So you would have had a mishmash of an How accent. How familiar is, it, is he from Van der Volk here? Because I've just said to you that I've not seen any of it, really. So. Some of the some of the bits, some of the scenes, uh, I'm going, he's playing Van der Volk with a um, pseudo-Cockney accent. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, I, I was having a little grin at that. Yeah, I mean, you know more about it than than us, I think. And again, that's a series we can possibly talk about at some point, some point in the future. And there's also the thing that I noticed that I had noticed in in, in the televised version, which is that Michael Caine's costume he's got um, an Inverness cape. Yeah. On, which you said he probably wouldn't be able to afford on his wages. No, I mean. Coachmen were provided Inverness capes as part of their uniform to wear, but uh, gentlemen wore Inverness capes. They're mm. heavy, they're woolen, they're going to be very expensive. Yeah. But I think it's the idea is to make him look Sherlock Holmes ish. Sherlockian. Sherlockian. Yes. I mean, they. So it's they, that image. Isn't they, it? image, because yeah. he's got a bowler hat on, because as much as people think that Sherlock Holmes wears a deer stalker, and a lot of the books he's wearing a bowler hat. Yeah. Doesn't he? He doesn't, <laughs> yes. So. Um, oh. But whereas in this version, he's just got he's got the bowl hat, but he's just got a sort of blue overcoat on, yeah. and it's very plain. It's yeah. very plain, yeah. He's just another policeman, basically, yes. isn't it? There's nothing special about him. He's not because I think the Inverness cape draws your eye to Michael Caine mm. every time he's in a shot. That's because he's very large. <laughs> <laughs> or a couple of things that. Um, I just want to ask you about the previous production, Warren. Uh, blue lamps. Um, did you want? Because I know you said about it. And well, I we asked forgot you, about the blue lamps. Yeah. Yeah. Explain about the blue horrible lamps. Horrible, cut off blue lamps, shoved on a wall. They wouldn't have had them like that. Um, the blue lantern, I don't think, comes in till about nineteen hundred. Because I guess say this is what you see in early. Um, Dixon Dot Greens, yeah. isn't it? I yeah. mean, the, the blue lamp is uh, a reassuringly identification symbol for a police station. Mm. Uh, but in those days, you would have just had a brass plaque. Yeah. Okay. And what was the other one? Oh, um, the, the flaming torches as well, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Some of the torches that some of the procession were clearly holding uh, well, the, 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 were gas powered, weren't they? Mm. Yeah. Though the blue flame wasn't really obvious. And it was obviously sometimes. Base, yeah. yeah, and some were on fire at the top, and some were on fire at the bottom, and there wasn't, uh, and there was clear, almost a clear section of it. But yeah, it was. It's a shame. It's things like that that really nag me. It's like gas fires. If you're going to have a real fire in a room, let's have a real fire in your room. Let's not have three shoots of blooming gas flame coming between. And what was the line about the death certificate as well? Signed by um, yeah. his son-in-law. 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 Yes. Um, it's not... Uh, in the film, they say it breaks with protocol. 
you'll find that that protocol doesn't exist because if you go to rural areas of Britain, you would have family members dealing with deceased family members on a, on a regular occurrence. Yeah. So th they may only be the um, the only person there to be able to lawfully carry out the post mortem. So their names quite regularly appeared on death certificates. Okay. But yeah, I I really found that. I perked up watching that. That's the thing. Yeah. I, I'd sort yeah. of zoned out watching watching the sort of two hour fifty. Or whatever it was, mm. um, um and thing. But but yeah, seeing the these you know, these these few shots and scenes of, of what survives of the original production mm. I was going, Oh, I actually want to see more of this. Yeah. How did you find the pace in the video stuff compared to the pace in the film stuff? It was much more engaging. It yeah. was. I found it faster mm. in the video stuff. Yeah, I, I was disappointed. I went, oh, is that all there is? <laughs> There's that wonderful clip at the beginning, isn't it, where they do their first shot and somebody shouts, right, let's break for lunch. Oh, yeah, they, they were very keen to get down the pub, I yeah. think. Back at one. But the, you could see the time constraints in which they're saying, right, let's get it in, let's, yeah. let's get this filmed. But there seemed to be pace more pace because they were the having to stuff. film it quicker yeah it's so that adds pace to it it's yeah. obviously cheaper but i found it much more engaging yeah which is, which is the thing and and you know ju just just because you spent money mm. it's no. not not the be all and end all i don't think and as you say film doesn't make it no not at all it's because there is there is a bit of a snobbery i think about people think oh we should be shooting on film and it's horses for courses. There are mm. some things that you should shoot on film. Of course there are. Mm. But there are other things, if you're trying to engage the viewer, where videotape is, is just as valid and in some cases is better. I should mm. imagine that the exterior stuff would have all been on film. Yes. Yeah. And that that's... The way know, they used to shoot that's, it. That's what yeah. it was yeah. used for yeah. in, you know, in, in those, sort of, those sort of shows. But, uh, yeah, I... I I, I was set, I was certainly intrigued by what survives, mm. and it, it it's very interesting because you know this show is round the archives, and it, mm. and, and that's all there is. Yeah, mm. and I'm thinking, so have, oh well, there's a missed opportunity. There's a there. lovely little yeah. morsel, a tantalising morsel. Of what could have been, yeah. yeah. But you know that gives a reason. If you want to see this footage, it's available on the Blu-ray yeah. and the DVD. Um, so you know, buy it and give it a go. Yeah, yeah. you might enjoy the, the the televised version. You might well do. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank okay. you, Ben. Okay. Bye. 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 Thanks to Warren. Yes, thank you, Warren, for your help. It would have been very hard to do it without you. Well, I thought it was interesting to sort of shake it up a bit and yes. give, give one to you and Warren, because yeah. yeah. uh, it's always me, isn't yes. it? And that's quite good that Warren knows things about bits of the story, about the why policemen are dressed and what they do yeah. and, and that... that Others that I wouldn't certainly know. Well, so. it's always, it was always good to you know try and match people to the subject. Yes. But Warren isn't going far. No, is he? he's back uh, again. As we've dragged him back. Yes. Sometime later, it has yes. to be said. Yes. And now we're going to look at wacky races. And now here they are, the most daredevil group of daddy drivers to ever whirl their wheels in the wacky races competing for the title of the world's wackiest racer. The cars are approaching the starting line. First is the Turbo Terrific, driven by Peter Perfect. Next, Rufus, Rupcut, and Sawtooth in the buzz wagon. Maneuvering for position is the Army Surplus Special. Right behind is the Ant Hill Mob in their bulletproof bomb. And there's ingenious inventor, Pat 
Whitney in his converter car. Oh, and here's the lovely Penelope Pitstop, the glamour gal of the gas pedal. Next, we have the Boldermobile with the Slag Brothers, Rock and Gravel. Lurching along is the creepy coupe with the gruesome twosome, and right on their tail is the Red Max. And there's the Arkansas Chugabug with Luke and Blubber Bear. Sneaking along last is that mean machine with those double-dealing do-batters, Dick Dastardly and his sidekick, Muttley. And even now, they're up to some dirty trick, and they're off to a standing start. And why not? They've been chained to a post by Shifty Dick Dastardly, who ships into the wrong gear. And away they go on the way out wacky races. Hello, Warren. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Warren. <laughs> We're giggling. Why are we giggling? I don't know. So fair, sir. What's that meant to be? I don't know. We, uh, we have been watching uh, Wacky Races, haven't yes, we? Yes, Wacky Races. Yeah. Yes. And um, what, what did you think, Warren? You said this is the first time you've seen it in a very... Since I was that long while, yeah. since no, you were how doing high? That, cause it's on audio. Oh, it's visual, since you were no how, hi- how yeah. high? Up to your knee. Up to my knee. Since he was very small. Okay. Since I was small and I was about a third of the size. Oh, less than that. Way less than that. <laughs> <laughs> but did it all come flooding back? Yeah, like an infection. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it did. But, it's but, good fun. But, but what sort of? You, you said about the soundtrack was the first thing that. Yeah. struck you little bits of snatches of music yeah that... Hanna Barbera always have a um, priceless soundtrack in the background don't they yeah and that, that they're always unique to their productions but and the sound effects that they use for the like being banged on the head and the, and the feet and the yeah. feet yeah running, running feet yeah. is so running I, feet. I always say to people at work when I'm on the kiosk because you'll be putting the stock away and turn around and there's three people waiting mm. and if they made that noise that people make in cartoons <laughs> I would know they were there and you could put this clothes sign down but yeah Wacky Races is um, 1968 to early 1969 in colour in colour mm-hmm. and basically it is just a race isn't it that's yes. all it is yeah. Yeah. there's a group of disparate characters mm-hmm. um, in what uh, characters? Disparate. Disparate. That's a good word. Um, in a variety of, um, of well, cars. they seem to come from a variety of not only sort of times time zones but different yeah. genres as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't a, date the series, does it? Yeah. yeah. So you can throw it at any because you you've got the Rock Brothers. Yes. Yeah. Um, there are two sort of cavemen. Obviously. The Rock Brothers, the Slag Brothers. Slag, Slag Brothers. I do beg your pardon. Yes. Rock and Gravel, yes. who are two cavemen. And they're really hairy. They're just all hair, aren't they? With a little nose stuck out yeah. in the arm. <laughs> <laughs> but they've got their big knobbly... I just love the way you... Again, that was another audio moment, wasn't <laughs> it? Pointed. Sorry, I was doing, I was doing a nose there. But I love the way they've got their big knobbly clubs in there. And, of course, yeah. they use the same design, Hannah Barbera, for, for Captain, Captain Caveman. Captain. This is the thing. Sorry. Wacky Races <laughs> spins <laughs> off into a variety of... Um, obvious things yeah. like Penelope, Penelope, the Penelope's of Penelope Pit Stop. Well, hello. Granville Fetcher Cloth, Penelope Pit Stop. Thank you. And of course, Dastardly Muttley in their flying machine attempting to stop the pigeon. That's the one I remember that more, I think. Yeah, I think I remember Stop the Pigeon mainly because of theme music as well. It's very memorable, isn't it? It is. But I think Wacky Races and Scooby Doo are influential on Hanna Barbera for at least the next 10 years. Yeah. 
because they're probably two very successful series and they spend ages then trying to recapture the magic don't mm. they with all these all these sort of slightly subpar things yes um that like are, speed buggy that are speed, speed buggy, buggy. <laughs> Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. He had no more pickled eggs for you later. Um, but it seems to be like consist of small groups of of teenagers, mm. yeah, who are going off having adventures in with in, ghosts in some kind of in, automobile, in some dre- yeah. dreadful vehicle. Yes. yes, and so there's a whole raft of of, mm. of these. But mm. um, what I like about this is the variety of characters you've got. So I think everybody, every kid watching at home, would have their own favorite character and want mm. them want them to win it's, it's also mm. a reflection of the programs that are on at the time as well so mm. if you take the gruesome twosome yeah that's clearly the monsters and almost the monsters car isn't it yeah mm. M- monsters stroke adam's yeah. family yeah because mm. yeah that's that's true because the monsters have got a a, a couple of cars yeah, actually, i know yeah. you've got the professor pat pending yes would he have been the mad professor because uh, walt disney had the films at the time didn't they the mad professor oh, right. oh when was that i'd need to look that up but uh yeah, I I must admit Professor Pat Pending was probably my favourite, mm. you know, being being a bit of a science geek. Um, the idea that you could press a button and your car would turn into anything. I like the way in one of the ones we watched he turns into a complete replica of the Boulder Mobile, complete <laughs> with the two. How does that work? <laughs> it's it's like Enemy of the World, isn't it? Yeah. Suddenly there's a there's a duplicate of the Boulder Mobile yes. and its occupants. Yes, and the clubs and everything. So no, so where's where's the, dog. Prof- where's the professor gone? Is he like split into two or Maybe, something? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. very, very strange. <laughs> But it's this whole thing about the physics of a cartoon should not be questioned, no. should it? No, it's impossible no. physics in those. Because you said yeah. about the thing about they run off the cliff, the legs are still going, they yeah. look down, and, and only then, then does gravity take over. Take yeah. over. Yeah. But some of the things that um, Dick Dastardly comes up with um, <laughs> just don't work because he's got this like big propeller thing which is blowing <laughs> onto a um, sail. Onto a sail, but that uh, action and reaction it wouldn't work it would work if it was wind but because the propeller's attached to the car in the first place mm. it's, it's, it's just going to push it back so what was the other observation you had about dick dastardly that i'd never realized until you, you pointed oh, it out well dick dastardly spends the whole of the race setting up traps for all the people that are behind him mm. yeah very very complex traps which must have taken at least an hour to set up Therefore, at some point, he must have been an hour ahead of them. So why didn't he just carry on driving? I don't think he really wants to win. He just wants... To destroy? Yeah, to to destroy. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, he's not quite like... Because I I, I akined him to the character of um, Terry Thomas and Eric Sykes in The Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines, which was roughly around this time. Yeah, Uh, But... As you say, yeah, um, Darcy Mutley, all they want to do is is, is frustrate people. Yeah. Uh, but whereas Terry Thomas's character wanted to win by any means possible. But yeah, they're, they're very quite. They're, yeah, you're quite right. They just mm-hmm. want to frustrate the race. Yeah, don't I they? don't think he really wants to win because he could just drive on and, and he would win without having to. I think it's because he knows times. he could win quite easily and leave yeah. the rest behind. He just wants He's to just make bored, it. He's just bored, is he? Yeah. bored, yeah. 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 And I'm not sure Matley really wants to destroy. Matley's just along for the ride. Yeah, I think for the laughs. Yeah, well, the Matley's laugh. Mongo, isn't he? I mean, yeah. <laughs> Mongo, Mongo. Who's mm. Mongo? It'll come back to me. It's gone out of my head now. All oh, right, okay. Oh, it's um, it's the evil henchman, isn't it? The evil henchman that really isn't that evil. Is just totally mm. inept at doing anything. Okay. <laughs> 
But um, what would you say your favourite character was, Warren? Any anyone that you were rooting for when you oh, were a kid? Oh, oh, always Penelope. Always Penelope Pitts. Always Penelope what, why, why that? She lovely lady. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, I used to have a running gag in the early episodes of this that I, I fancied Penelope Pitstop. But you, you said, Lisa, she is incredibly dim, isn't yes. she? Well... As you pointed out, not so much in this because she's actually using this. Oh, she's manipulative. She dimness, is. supposed dimness, to get her own way. Yeah. But in the perils of Penelope Pitstop, she's incredibly hey, dim hey. because it's extremely obvious that Sylvester Sneakley, her solicitor, is the hooded claw. Yeah. Because he's got the same nose and everything. <laughs> and yes, but he's holding up a cloak to, to his, his face, face. Yeah, so he'd be completely impossible to tell, wouldn't he? Hey, hey. <laughs> but. I was just going to say that I, I always like the anthill mob. Why do you like the anthill mob? I don't know. I, I always just thought I they just were thought, quite sort of... I think mm. probably because I'd seen them in the Perils of Penelope Pitstop first. Right. So I could identify with, with I, them, maybe. I want to know how they can drive the car. Yeah, because they well, can't reach the pedals. <laughs> <laughs> well, was it? They're all sat in the... Oh, and they're all sat in the front. They're yeah. all sat in the front. And we it's got this up on, sheet, on Twitter. And we said, well... Why don't some of them sit in the back? And somebody said that's where they keep the bodies. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was brilliant because they're clearly gangsters, yes, aren't they? Yeah. Twenties gangsters. Twenties gangsters, uh, probably with Tommy guns. And yes. Things. Don't they have Tommy guns at one point? Oh, I can't, I can't there's, a, there's a scene where they've all I got Tommy guns Tommy out guns. of the window. Yes, and they were shoot. Yeah, I think yeah. that's in Wacky Races, yeah. isn't it? All right, okay. Um, oh, which season? <laughs> but, but yeah, Martin Holmes has done us a, a lovely illustration. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. With me and Lisa as two of the anthill mob, which we've just printed out and put up on, on, on the, the wall. wall there. And I think that's absolutely <laughs> lovely. Um, but, yeah, some of the sort of lesser remembered ones are the Red Max mm. in the Crimson Hay Baler, which is a sort of car stroke aeroplane thing. Crimson Hay Baler? Yeah, that's what it's called, yes. These all have sort of country twangs to them, yeah. really, don't they? Um, and um, Rufus Roughcut and his <laughs> companion Sawtooth. <laughs> Um, so he's a lumber, lumberjack and is 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 uh, very is very close beaver yeah. in the buzz wagon. Mm. What's the, what's the matter? I'm trying one? to think where the because the beaver turns up in a Harababera oh, as does well, it? doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, the Ark, I have to be, how do you say it, Lisa? The Arkansas, the Arkansas Chugabug, which is yes. Lazy Luke and I'm, Blubber Bear. Yes. Now, what's your story about Arkansas? Oh, well, many years ago, I used to work for a shipping company. Yeah. And I was phoned by one of our um, clients who wanted to send something to <coughs> Arkansas. <coughs> Where? Arkansas. So, so again, I coughed over to, it. To Arkansas. And I'm like, you want to send it where? To Arkansas. I'm like, where's Arkansas? Oh, you mean Arkansas? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's one of those words. If like you write, Norwich. write Norwich. it down, you wouldn't know how to... Because there was the, the the pop group, the 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 popular beat combo that I used to refer to as Scrytai Politei. Scritty <laughs> Politi. Yes, uh, but Lazy Luke and Blubber Bear, but he's introduced simply as um, Luke and Blubber Bear. Yes, it makes it sound like his surname is Bear. Luke mm. Bear, Luke as Bear. though they're related in yeah. some related. way. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, the Army Surplus Special. Yes. Yep. Which is the sort of tank thing. But it's got it's got sort of um, tracks on it, hasn't yeah. it, and a big cannon and stuff. Mm -hmm. And and it just it's just like what unit would drive if they were <laughs> if they were in. What this, you mean in the, after the episode of um, a robot 
Yeah, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, Sergeant Blast and Private Meekly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, Warren, I have a question for you, and I'm going to ask, I don't know whether okay. Lisa knows or not. Um, I've got a book here, The Wacky Races Handbook, um, which gives you a complete episode guide and character breakdown and analysis of the cars and everything like that. And they've annotated all the race wins. Okay. And assign them points. <clears throat> so you score more points if you get a first place, but second and third will also score you some points as well. Now, um, it should be a no surprise to you that um, the mean machine comes in last with no firsts, no seconds and no thirds. So it scores um, no points at all. But if I were to ask you what, who the top three were, who would you think? I'd go Professor Pat Pending. Right. You'd probably be at the top. Right. Then I would have the Slag Heap Brothers. Mm-hmm. The Slag Heap Brothers. <laughs> the Slag Heap Brothers. <laughs> but you found them on the, like, the compost heap. <laughs> yeah. And then I would go for dear old Penelope. Okay. So, Lisa. I'm who, not sure. Who do you I, think I don't win? know. I'm going to say Peter Perfect because I've seen him win at least right. one. Peter Purvis. Peter okay. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, that used to confuse <laughs> yeah. me as a kid. And uh, uh, we'll say the Iron Hill Mob because I like the Iron Hill Mob. Right. And I'm going to say. Uh, I'll say pe- 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 Professor pe- pe- Pat Pending. Well, I won't. I won't read the complete list out. But in third place, um, with four firsts, five seconds, and, and two thirds, scoring ninety-two points on this system is the bulletproof bomb. Ooh. So they're third. That's the Ant Hill Mob, right? In second place, with three firsts, six seconds, and four thirds, and one hundred and two points. This is a shock. It's Rufus Roughcut and Sawtooth in the buzz wagon. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. One that nobody remembers. But a resounding victory um, with only three first places, but eight second places, which is what really Mm. does it. And three thirds and 112 points. It's, it's the Boulder Mobile. Hey, the Slag Heat Brothers. <laughs> the Slag Heat Brothers, as you christen them. <laughs> and yes, um, they don't score the most number of firsts. That the, there are several people that get um, the most firsts. So the Bulletproof Bomb, the Compact Pussycat, the Arcan- Arkansas Chugabug, and the Turbo Terrific all score four firsts. But because they don't have as many second places. They're not considered to be mm. ahead of the bulletproof uh, okay. of the bulletproof of the uh, the slag brothers. The wheel. So there you go. Yeah. And the oh. theory is because they had quite a simple car, there was very little with it that could actually should go be wrong. The heaviest car, though, should about be. what you know, and even if it <laughs> fell apart, they could just bash it back into into yeah. into, into, into and their a wins, working order. Their winds are absolutely rock solid, aren't they? Mm. But Warren, oh. what were you saying about the wheels? That you, you said about on the animation that the wheels were weird when they were drawn. When they, yeah, because the roads are never flat; they're slightly at an angle. So that, but the the wheels are drawn as if they're um, standing level. Right, so it looks bizarre, especially when they're going over the the metal bridge. Okay, but yeah, I really enjoyed seeing some of those. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. not something you want to sort of sit down and binge on necessarily. No, no. Is it? no. you just just do mm. just do a you know a couple a couple of episodes. Um, but now now it's just nice to have them all. Um, it's good fun and, mm. and yeah but it's the sheer imagination I think in yeah. the design of 
the characters and the cars and and the amazing voice work yes. that everybody does because it's a very small cast of people. Yeah, there's, there's no more than about seven or eight people, is there? Doing so. doing all the voices. Yeah. And each episode is very fresh, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, there's there's no repetition. Other mm. than you know that Dick Darcy is always going to make up a mega fail. Yes, yeah. he's always going to lose. So. But um, there's. Uh, an awful lot of non-English versions of it, according yeah. to Wikipedia. Mm. <laughs> um, Bosnian, French, German, Hungarian, Polish, um, Spanish, Serbian, Swedish. And again, the actual, as we said about um, Mind Your Language, the translations of it into other mm. languages. So in Bosnian, it's, it translates as strange racing. Mm-hmm. Catalan, the bumpy cars. Mm-hmm. French, the fools of the wheel. Frisian, I don't even know where that is. Rally of hot knees. <laughs> <laughs> That's Penelope. <laughs> Hungarian, flush race. What? That's like carry on at your convenience, isn't it? Um, Swedish, speed freaks. Um, Serbian, strange racing. Um, and Polish cool races, yeah. So, but it is it an easier? It's an easy um, production to voice over, I would say. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I think it tra- every, it, it yeah. travels well. Yeah. I think that's the it's thing. a race. You know the races. Yeah, you, you know that you know the format. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it's it, it's certainly something I remember from from my childhood, and being quite always quite pleased when it came yeah. on, because mm. there was always, as I said, there was always somebody you, you sort of. You wanted to cheer on, so I, I, and I also, you know, I was always quite fond of Captain Caveman. Yeah, for right. Hanna Barbera. Okay, yeah, so, all right, because he's quite sweet. Yeah, all right. Well, there you go. Thank you, boys and girls, with his, with his, his little nose, with his nose sticking out. Yes. Well, I assume it's his nose. <laughs> Thank you again to Warren. Yes, thank you, Warren. It's always fun to do stuff with Warren. He always comes up with with interesting ideas. Yes. Um, one extra thing about wacky races that I forgot to say. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was very small, um, smaller than I am now, uh, our next door neighbour, mm-hmm. um, their kids were about slightly younger than me, but not too too far away. And we used to play wacky races, right? Because um, they had ver- various vehicles, mm-hmm. uh, included some sort of child's tricycle and a sort of tractor thing. Mm-hmm. And we used to sort of go up and 
from like their porch mm. in front of their house, in front of our house, to our porch, turn around again, and then go back the other right. way. Okay. And um, I do remember, um, I think it was because there was a boy and a girl, and I, I remember the boy and I were racing, mm. and the girl stood in the middle, and every time we passed her, she fed us some KP griddles okay. from a packet. <laughs> And I'm sure she'd sucked on them because they were a bit sticky, oh. some of them. So they're really <laughs> horrible, isn't it? You know? Yes. So that's, that's not the sort of prize you want to win for no. wagging, soggy griddles. No. <laughs> but anyway, yes. uh, moving on swiftly, mm-hmm. let's uh, welcome back Mr. Martin Holmes, yes. who's going out into space now mm-hmm. uh, to encounter Star Cops. On Monday, a computer malfunction sends the Star Cops on a dangerous mission to the moon. Star Cops drive into danger on Monday at 8.30 on 2. Occasionally, you find that there's something you really quite fancy watching and find that you never bothered picking it up on DVD because you already owned it on VHS. Then, rather typically, you discover that the DVD release that you once so brutally shunned has now been deleted and can only be got hold of second-hand and at vastly inflated prices. Granted, that's market forces for you and whilst you can't buy everything, sometimes it's better to strike while the iron is at least lukewarm and so on and so on. Sometimes you just have to accept that you have, unfortunately, missed out. So it was with Star Cops, a show that I suddenly fancied having another look at when it was announced that the audio production company Big Finish were planning on giving it a revisit 30-odd years down the line. Anyway, after having a bit of an old rummage in the boxes, it turned out that I hadn't chucked out those old tapes, and with a little bit of further rummaging and a certain amount of jiggery-pokery with the TV set, knowing from the outset that it won't be easy, I was able to dust off the old video recorder, plumb it in, and have a quick shufty at the opening episode, An Instinct for Murder. Justin Haywood's opening theme is a piece of music that's coming for a lot of criticism down those three decades, but strangely I found it rather appealing in a nostalgic way when it kicked in straight away from those pre-pre-credit sequence times. 
Episode 1 divides its time about 50-50 between Earth and space in order to provide our hero, one Chief Superintendent Nathan Spring, as played by that very fine actor David Calder, who as a balding middle-aged man is not exactly a usual leading man in an action series, with a backstory grounded very securely on Earth, reduce the need for potentially shonky special effects, show off what a damn fine copper he is to audiences more used to, for example, the Bergerac style of policing. This also means that the same potential audience who might find any sci-fi trappings in their teleseries a big turn-off might potentially get drawn into the story before they realise that that's what it is. This was, after all, the late 1980s, and viewers in the late 1980s really, really hated science fiction, don't you know? Cinema box office receipts at the time might have proved otherwise, but who were we to argue with massively paid TV executives who probably barely watched any telly themselves? Anyway... This splitting of the storyline also means that, apart from Nathan and his soon-to-be sidekick David Theroux, as played by Eric Ray Evans, you get to see very little of the other star cops in this particular episode. Linda Newton's character Pal Kenzie does get a cough and a spit via a video monitor, but perhaps rather cleverly, we are being slowly introduced to our gang in much the same way as Nathan is. And so, the episode tells the story of two crimes, a deliberate drowning of a man in a lake, on Earth, by two frogmen is paralleled by the murder of a space-suited man by two space-suited assassins. The cross-cutting between the murders emphasises the link still further. These two crimes, in two different worlds, are very similar. Get it? Got it? Good. We know where we are. Mind you, any programme that starts off with some filming of some ducks gets my vote right off the bat. It loses them immediately, however, thanks to the mustard bathrobe and, yike, a terrifying pair of swimming trunks. And so, on Earth, a body is found in a duck pond, and whilst this might be a job for the fashion police, it is handed over to one Nathan Spring in his non-unsurprisingly temporary-looking office, which is dominated by one vast voice-controlled television screen, which you can shout at to make it rewind and play, which makes it handy for those boring, crimeless afternoons down the station, I suppose. We immediately find out what kind of detective Nathan Spring is when he demands of his subordinate Brian Lincoln, played by Andrew Seacombe, what, 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 that instead of trusting to the probabilities of the machines, which have already decided that this was an accident, he should investigate it properly by asking important questions like, where did he drown? Meanwhile, up in space, we discover that David Theroux is a similarly awkward kind of copper, too. He's an American because they're a pretty international bunch, floating up there in their simple one-piece blue space overalls, making for a cheap yet surprisingly authentic-looking uniform and saving hugely on the costuming budget. Despite the boredom of his job, meaning that David's floating around and playing far too many quiz-question games with his friendly neighbourhood traffic controller, he's decided that the accidental deaths put down to suit failure are happening far too often and, via a comms link, cynical chat with the notorious gambler and Australian officer Pal Kenzie, we find out about the death rates being down but constant and within acceptable safety margins, which in this cold, calculating, computerised society means that he has to remind them all that they still lose people. There's also some chat, plot seeding alert, about the vacant commander's position and about how Kenzie, plot seeding alert, really needs the extra money they'd pay. Before we return to the mundane ritual of communicating with Euro Shuttle 7, just in case we've forgotten that we're up in space. 
on Earth. Nathan's commander is played by one very class act, Moray Watson, more than 30 years on from his appearance in the original version of the Quatermass experiment. The commander, strangely unnamed on the final credits, tells Nathan that there's no evidence of a murder and that the computers have predictably ruled the incident to be an accident. Nathan signs off with a cheery mutter of bastard, just to show us what kind of copper he is, and we get our first glimpse of Box, Nathan's far too expensive and state-of-the-art version of Siri or Lexa or whatever, which is also voiced by David Calder in a strangely narcissistic twist, and is able to do clever oracky things like book dreadful restaurants for Nathan and his girlfriend Lee to eat in. Lee, when we meet her, seems rather nice, in a being a bit like 1980s Barbara Flynn, but probably slightly cheaper way. But I ought to warn you that, because Nathan needs to have no ties to Earth later on in the series, she's someone who we won't be wanting to get too fond of. It won't be easy without her. No. No. Anyway, Nathan's persistence leads to a personal telling off by Commander Moray, who claims not to back hunches and has a video mood wall tuned to his brainwave so that people can tell he really means it when he's telling them off. Much future times police work, it seems, is subject to assessment by the Accounts Committee, who still think that the murder was an accident, and Nathan is told to go on leave, and is strongly suggested that he ought to try very, very hard to get the ISPF job that he reluctantly applied for to get out of the niche he settled himself into. Plot seeding alert. It turns out that, despite really not wanting the job, he's made the shortlist and, as the only Brit left in the race, Moray won't let him withdraw his name, making suggestions that he might not get a similar rank if he stays on Earth, and it's during this conversation that Nathan realises that he's being got rid of, and we hear the first mention of the term Star Cops, which is definitely meant as a jibe and not a compliment. It is also stressed that the term for life in orbit is out there and not up there a term that pops up a lot later in the episode, so we'd better be paying attention at the back there. Anyway, despite the commander making himself very clear on the matter, Nathan decides to investigate anyway, showing just the type of maverick copper he is. And his walk by the murder pond makes him late for dinner, despite box. Up in space, there are a few more shonky effects shots, as Stevenson, the traffic controller played by Keith Varnier, makes a few allegedly witty racist jibes as his comrades and David carries on checking spacesuits. That's right, please note, David is checking spacesuits. On Earth, because Nathan insisted, and very much against his own better judgement, Brian makes a very surprising house call to interview the widow, and we discover that the victim collected clocks and that all of the pocket watch cases in the collection were empty. Well done, Brian. Nathan, meanwhile, has a very tense dinner with Lee, which at least fills in a lot of his backstory. His dad used to sell computers, which made him aware that machines can't resist deliberate sacrifices, but less aware that Lee really doesn't like this restaurant. There's a lot of chat about assigning Brian against orders, Nathan's instinct for murder, episode title alert, minds being made up, bad jokes, and the fact that Lee at least wants them to settle down to a life of domestic bliss. Meanwhile, in space, as a food pack floats dodgily by, more spacesuits are checked. Yes, more spacesuit checking. Keep up. This might become really important later on. Nathan then fails to fail his interview, which is an international multi-person video conference call, which must have seemed excitingly possible in 1987, but nowadays just reminds you of all the tedious mundane management nonsense so many of us have to sit through on a daily basis. How times change cutting-edge technology to mundane everyday drudgery. 
in the turn of a tape spool. Still, we like Nathan, even as he's being interviewed, and we find out more about him. He prefers Sherlock Holmes to Dan Dare in anticipation of tomorrow's newspaper reviews, which makes him a good egg. And so his training begins in anticipation of an acclimatisation visit to high Earth orbit. Next time we see him, he's in a slightly unconvincing centrifuge thingy of the sort that nearly did for Roger Moore in Moonraker, and he seems more interested in getting Brian to investigate the widow's finances and making grumpy jokes than anything else in the training montage. It won't be easy. No. No. Meanwhile, at the pond, we see a dog walker who obviously noticed something dodgy afoot to help with Brian's investigations. And so... Nathan finally makes it into space via a shuttle and some upside-down revolving camera floating clipboard jiggery-pokery to remind us of the fact. Despite being horribly space-sick, he sees through the suggestion that Russia's service contract is at fault. Not enough to stop the execution of some poor unfortunate, sadly. Well, Perestroika was yet to happen in the real world. And that there's more to it. He suspects a professional hit designed to fool the computer, whereas his own technique is to start from murder and get persuaded otherwise. Whilst dangling from wires on his dodgy-looking blue-screen space station tour, it becomes apparent that they must expect an accident soon. Later episodes would avoid the worst aspects of trying to simulate zero gravity by shifting the Star Cops headquarters to a moon base, which meant that it could be, to a certain extent, ignored for dramatic purposes. Overall, this benefits the series greatly, as it knows its limitations, and does its best to avoid the problem of shoddy effects hiding the damn good stories that they were trying to tell. Meanwhile, in communication with Earth, Nathan discovers that Brian has found an anomaly. But before anyone has any time to think, there's a blue alert, and a political bigwig named Henderson is killed via some shunky SFX, and the whole future of the space project lies on a knife edge. A metaphorical knife edge, obviously, not a bloody dripping jack-in-the-rippery literal one. That would be far too easy. Anyway, Nathan finds out that he's heading up the investigation via the news and has another shouty meeting with Moray before we find David Theroux has been brought down to Earth and Nathan's apartment for what he thinks is a telling off of his own, especially as Nathan is busily inspecting a spacesuit that he has on the floor. David, you see, sees Nathan checking a spacesuit and, with all of the spacesuit checking he's been doing himself, his and perhaps our minds immediately go to the fact that someone's going to take the blame for all this and that someone is very probably going to be David Theroux. However, they seem to bond over old movie quotes and, just to show what sort of a copper he is, it is Nathan that mentions that the acceptable failure statistics of spacesuits represent actual people actually dying. There's a lot of investigative discussion asking exactly the sort of questions that the viewer might have been asking at home in these less passive times about whether the quality control is at fault, whether the failure rate is constant, or whether it's currently slightly worse. In fact, it's actually better than normal, which is why the computers aren't being alerted to anything suspicious. Having not quite ruled out the possibility of corrupt officials, just to show the kind of cynical copper he is, he suggests that they start looking for payoffs and clues, and the upshot of all this is that, whilst David thinks he's being blamed, ho ho, all of the suit checking is really just part of Nathan's astronaut training programme. Via box, we learn a little more about the background to the Russians having the service contract and the so-called acceptable 2% error rate, which makes it possible to stage an accident without alarming the computers, all of which might be a motive if someone else manages to get the contract. We cut back to another meal with Lee in the same dreadful restaurant that she's already told him she loathes, but because Nathan's been too distracted by his work, because that's the kind of dogged, single-minded, see-it-through-to-the-bitter-end copper he is, he forgot to tell Box that Lee doesn't like the place. 
In that relationship, it seems that he's forgetting rather a lot, because he's also forgot to mention that he's made the shortlist for the outer space job, which leads to a bit of a row, which is interrupted by Box telling him that he really ought to switch on the news, and, with the exciting thrust of new technology, the waiter rolls over a portable TV set on a sort of sweet trolley so that he can see it. Ha ha. What's less amusing is that a Russian maintenance operative has been accused of murder by negligence, which does serve to remind Lee of the real-world consequences of Nathan doing his job. Resigned to the fact that her future plans might be about to suddenly change, but probably not aware of just how drastically yet, she starts to refer to Nathan as a star cop, to which he replies with exasperated bonhomie, I am not a star cop, I am a fully trained spaceman, which does mean that with an enigmatic I have to go, they part on reasonably friendly terms at least, and Lee's melancholy farewell words of don't look down love are surprisingly touching moment amongst all the sci-fi antics. Back in space, the news is all that the beastly Russians will execute their space engineer, and Nathan and David find out that nothing's private from your friendly neighbourhood traffic controller from Stevenson, who is listening in on their radio transmissions and sees and hears all. It might be worth remembering that, and a very prescient glimpse of the future. One of the downsides of resurrecting the old VHS player is that the playing heads started protesting at having to reuse their gears after all this time, and so for the rest of the episode the soundtrack started to get a bit screamy, and I thought that the precious tape was going to snap. Happily, we were both able to stagger on to the end of the programme, but it was touch and go there for a while, I can tell you. When lives start to depend on technology, it's wise to remember that when technology goes wrong, it can go very wrong indeed, and situations can escalate dramatically. Nathan suggests that they ought to look into connections, however tenuous they might be, across the whole of the out there community and find out where everyone was at the time of the deaths and run a computer cross-check. He also wants it displayed on all consoles so it's no secret and, just to show the kind of psychologically understanding sort of copper he is, allow people to find it for themselves. Then he chooses to deliberately let out the most secure of secrets, not that he throws up a lot in space, just to show what kind of vulnerable copper he is, but that he's planning on going outside for a spacewalk fairly soon if any anonymous space assassins might wish to take a pop at him. And so, as the ragtag band of star cops, still seen as one step down from nightclub bouncers on the crime-solving Spectrum, remember, attempt to get the suspect list down to a more manageable length whilst indulging in more fuzzy edged Kirby wire dangling corridor fun, David has twigged that Nathan has decided to make himself a target, just to show the kind of brave yet reckless copper he is. And there's more bonding over old movie quotes. With Nathan having left on his fishing trip, David, realising that his pal Stevenson sees all and knows all, finally twigs that nothing gets past your friendly neighbourhood traffic controller and mentions this to his pal who suddenly becomes a rather less friendly traffic controller with an evil voice. And someone who, not unreasonably, and by now perhaps not unexpectedly, pulls a gun on him. With Nathan alone and outside in space, with his backup now out of the game, the space-suited assassins move in to a funky electro-pop beat. With David held at gunpoint, it's time for some real science to explain that the percussion weapon has reduced muzzle velocity, because firing off guns in such a dangerous environment is basically a very stupid thing to do. During yet another round of dangling corridor antics, David seems more concerned that Stevenson and he were friends rather than the whole imminent death thing, and, as he is taken to the spacesuit store to be dressed for his own sudden and unexplained accidental death, one of the spacesuits that's drifted up to the ceiling in the zero gravity of the space station springs into life and pounces on the gunman. Huzzah! 
Nathan was not killed by the unidentified space-suited assassins after all. In fact, having drawn them out into the open, he used a medical laser to zap them both, and they are now floating around outside, hoist by their own Kirby wires. So Nathan has saved David, and there's only a little bit more backstory to fill in as we learn that Box was a gift from Nathan's father. As an uncomfortably floaty Nathan, here's a news report stating, as no surprise to any of us really, that he's tipped to be the new commander of the International Space Police Force. With the case resolved, back down on Earth, Nathan is taking to wearing a trench coat and standing moodily on location, just to show what kind of a film noir copper he is. In a final meeting with Commander Moray, Nathan states emphatically that he doesn't want the job, and Moray, rather unhelpfully, suggests that he could, of course, retire. The job he has has suddenly become the job he had, as Brian Lincoln has been far too impressive in solving the drowning case, it was the wife what done it, and has been given Nathan's job. Moray is impressed that Lincoln went on with the case despite being told not to, even though, irony of ironies, we all know it was down to Nathan's insisting and carrying on long after Brian wanted to close the book on the whole thing. Ha ha. Grumpily and resigned to his new fate, Nathan invites his former boss to visit him in space, and it looks as if he's not going to have an easy time of it, as Moray gleefully informs him that there were rumours that the poor Russian has already been executed, so they are not happy, and that... Because our Brit has been chosen over their guy, the Americans are not happy with his appointment either. And so, an impressive first episode ends with Nathan suggesting that he may be the wrong man for the job. It won't be easy. With its unique selling point and its rather clever and philosophical style of storytelling, Star Cops really deserved to get a longer run. Sadly, this was not to be. Several production problems and a ridiculously stupid time slot pretty much doomed the entire project to low ratings and convinced more than one bigwig at the BBC that science fiction for television was, ironically, dead in the water. After nine episodes, with a planned tenth cancelled due to strike action, the plug was pulled, and Nathan and his team were never seen on our televisions again, which is rather a pity. Some of the episodes, most notably Intelligent Listening for Beginners and This Case to be Opened in a Million Years, were almost astonishingly good, despite everything suggesting that they really ought not to be, given that it was a studio-bound production and made by the BBC in those pre-CGI days that occasionally caused things to slip dangerously towards parody or embarrassment. Rewatching that first episode again now, even with the screaming limitations of my own viewing equipment, I also rather enjoyed the downbeat, perhaps deliberately Philip Marlowe-esque mood to the episode. This was film, well, tele-noir, in a science fiction setting, and that really is not a bad thing. So hurrah for Star Cops, quite possibly the smartest, cleverest and most out-there science fiction detective series that too few people remember. Now, anyone from Mars? As always, many thanks to Martin yes, for helping. Yes, thank you, Martin. Uh, again, a lovely article. 
Yes, and of course he will be back next time. And I mm-hmm. still have a choice of things yes. from him to yes, what we could put on. He's given so. us lots of good articles. I, I really like the fact that we can juggle his stuff. Yes. So that, that's yes. really useful. Um, and now, what's next? Ooh, what do you? What would you like to do, Lisa? Oh well, I think we should look at uh, the rivals of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Victorian London lived many detectives who were the rivals of Sherlock Holmes. In late podcasting days, there were many articles on Round the Archives, but none of them were as strange as the one on The, the Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Hello, boys and girls. Hello. Today we have been looking at the case of the Dixon torpedo <laughs> yes. from 8th of the November's 1971. <laughs> Nothing to do with George Dixon, is no. it? No. No. But, We've done this in... in this is... Uh, in tribute to Jacqueline Pierce. Yes, because yes. although um, you know we've we, we've done a piece about uh, Jacqueline Pierce on on video, haven't mm. we? We talked about sand, sand mm. and of course Warren remembers uh, the photo that you had yes. at the convention yes. when yes. she when she'd been on the way. And meeting you on a t- tube train, isn't it? Yeah. touching me. Yes, yeah. touching yes. me on the circle. What did she say yes. to you? <laughs> yes, um, yes, it is, dear. Isn't yeah. it? Yes. But yeah, she's only in a couple of scenes yes. of mm. this, and and um, she's got a vastly underwritten role. Yeah, but even so, I th- still think she makes an impact, doesn't she? She does. Yes, she's you know she she's she's quite recognisable. I yeah. think mm. isn't 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 she? Because you know this is this is years yes. before Blake, mm-hmm. but uh, it's just. Lovely to see it. Although there is one line we wince, we wince a, at, and we'll mm. get to that in a minute. But it's such a Jackie line, though, isn't it? Because mm. she plays that as yeah, she does like play it with a twinkle, yeah. it's a cheeky twinkle. But <laughs> the rivals of Sherlock Holmes. It's a series we've been meaning to do for some time. Yes, and every now and then somebody discovers it on Twitter, don't they? And we yeah. talk about it endlessly. And we talk about it and say, yes. "Oh, glad you, glad you found it." Uh, but this is from the first season and it mm-hmm. stars Ronald Hines as Jonathan Pride. Jonathan Pride. And basically we should say what the Rivals of Sherlock Holmes is because in case anybody doesn't actually know it, it's, a, it's an anthology series mm-hmm. and each episode it's all based on stories of about detectives yeah. that are, were written around the same time that Conan Doyle writes the Sherlock Holmes stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all different detectives so you've got this one you've got the horse of the invisible which is Karnaki yeah. you've got the missing witness which is um, I can't remember his name Carados mm-hmm. Max Carados and it's, it's all um, missing QCs that's an experience that's that one that's an experience behind um, any other yeah and it's all different detectives and this yeah. different particular detective is Jonathan Pride and he's in partnership with a, another detective Martin Huey who's yeah. in a couple of other stories and he's played by Peter Barkworth yeah. 
But essentially, these are characters who have had multiple stories written about multiple adventures. So, in fact, any of these single episodes could have spun off into their own series. And and there are ones I really wish they'd done. I really wish they'd done um, the Max Carados ones and the um, the Karnaki one. Karnaki especially, I think, would make a very interesting series. Mm. But you also get the likes of... um, Oh God, I've forgotten his name. Big issue did a Karnaki. Hmm? Big issue. Big finish. Big finish. Big finish. <laughs> yes, big finish. Yeah. Have done some Karnaki stories with Dan Dan Starkey. Yes. Um, Andrew, yeah. Andrew Cutler and Andrew wrote, wrote, wrote a yeah. Karnaki yeah. Um, second Doctor story. Yeah. Foreign Devils. Over there. Yeah, which we've got oh. over there. Because yes. the thing about Karnaki is mm. he's, his character is now in the public domain. Yeah. Yeah. So you can mm. write about okay. him willy-nilly and Peter Vaughan that's who I was trying to think of Peter Vaughan plays Horace Doddington oh, yes. he's a great character <laughs> grouty yes yeah. and it is very like grouty it's a very yes. grouty character yes yeah. yes let's just say even though he's um, an inquiry agent he's not always on the right side of the law yeah he's quite con art isn't he doesn't he steal something to sell it back to somebody saying he's found it yeah. something like that yeah. yes Yes. But we start with the title sequence, mm. which is like a sort of lantern slide show, yes. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, and you see it's sort of the, the the wick being lit or whatever, mm. isn't it? And then you get this voiceover, which we've yeah. sort of done the pee take How of. How do you describe it? This one wasn't very fruity, actually. It's a very fruity, fruity one for series. The series two ones, whoever's doing it can't really be bothered. But the first couple, it's as though like somebody's just wandered in. Yeah. Like like they've got like the bloke that locks up at night yeah. to do it. It's not <laughs> an actor doing come it. Do, come and do this narration. Boy, no, I don't. I say no. No, I you'll be fine. You do the toilets <laughs> Just read these words. Yes. Arrivals of Sherlock Holmes. Yes, <laughs> it's just like that. <laughs> But we, we start off on video. Well, yes. the whole thing's on video. Yeah, it's on video. Yes. But it's that wonderful OB video where <laughs> everything's slightly blurry, isn't mm-hmm. it? And, yeah. and bright lights don't do the cameras any good. No. Oh. And we're down by the lake. A lot of foliage. And there's a dodgy mm-hmm. bloke in the shrubbery. Yes, and it's Cyril Shapps. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's Cyril Shapps doing lurking in the shrubbery with a beard? With a beard. He's yeah. got his beady on and someone, binoculars. hasn't he? He's got a pair of knockers in his hand. Yeah. He's got his beady on someone. He's mm. looking at a bloke who's got his torpedo out. He's got. He's, he's like a little. It's almost like a little boat thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And he, he he takes this sort of weapon or whatever mm. it is, yeah. and he places it in the water. Yes. And you know, it's it's a decent size. Yeah. You know, for, yeah. And um and it starts moving on its own, doesn't it? It sort of trundles across the lake and yes. I said to you is that remote controller on a string and what as you said it's on a string because you can see it um, <laughs> but uh, uh, Ronald Hines enters on his bicycle yes. and he's also got his hat on Yes, they've all, all got hats on he it's, had a it's funny a... cloth cap on didn't he yes he yeah. did for that yes. yeah. can't have a, we can't have a bowler hat on riding the bicycle I don't know you could have the lamp on the front <laughs> couldn't you <laughs> But he gets out his his telescope. Hmm. So effectively, it's all voyeurism yeah, going on here, isn't it? <laughs> we're at home watching him, watching somebody yeah. else, Who's watching watching somebody, watching somebody else. else. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but, but but yeah, then then we capture him back at the back at his office, um, and um, he's well, as you said, he's reading out the letter to himself. Yes, isn't he? I always find it quite so. I know it is for the fact for the. Uh, for the for the audience, but do you sit and read your letters out loudly no. after you've written them? No. But uh, enter no, who is it? Prince Oblonsky, yes. <laughs> who's played by Raf de la Tour, who most people would know as the the judge that nods a lot. I, I, 
Kings of Mariners. I love the way you say most people. You mean most Doctor Who fans. Well, yes. most people listening to this. Most people listening to this. He's nodding yes. in that is really over the top, yes. isn't yeah. it? Yes. yes. Well, it's the two on the end, because one of them really has a good nod. I reckon he's working them yes. by hand. <laughs> well, they nod like Billio, like they're the Duracell bunny, and they're going to like not run out of nodding power. But, um, what? Yeah. what kind of analogy is that? But a Fritz, Fritz Oblonsky has, has come from Russia. Yes. And he's he's wor- not come from Russia, he's come from the Russian embassy. <laughs> I mean, he has come from Russia, but he hasn't come especially from <laughs> Russia come, to see John Well, on our way to Salisbury to see the cathedral. <laughs> he's come over on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want to, you want to, I was going to say he to go to the pawnbrokers, but we'll get to that in a minute. Mm. Um, he's worried about forged rubles, yes. isn't he? Yes. Somebody's forging his rubles. Yes. Um, and he says, go down to Pimlico. Mm. There's a street see in a Pimlico, <laughs> which is full of pawnbrokers and ponces, apparently. But that's according to his cl- to Jonathan Pryde's clerk. So we then cut to Jonathan Pryde going up a huge staircase. Yeah, it's, about, it's at least four steps. Four steps, and, yeah. And he's passed on the staircase by Cyril Shaps. Right. And mm. his comedy beard. Who's got his washing on the line in his room. He's, he's, mm. uh, he's hung up his rubles to dry. Yes. Because <laughs> the ink's still a bit wet on them. Yes. And he wants to have dry rubles. He's laundering his money. Yes. But yeah, cut, cut back to uh, At Home with Jonathan Price. Pride. 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 <laughs> Jonathan God Price. Dear, oh dear. <laughs> He'd be laughing too much. He? <laughs> um, and Jacqueline Pierce is a vision in purple. Yes. And she, she is. Isn't she's she? playing with a load of marbles, isn't yes. she? Yeah, we didn't look at what the game was, did we? It's some sort of solitaire it's game. Sort of, yeah, sort of solitaire. You move she's marbles from one bit to another. It, she? Yeah, she's yes. giving the marbles her full attention. Yeah. I did wonder whether her character was this. Like, this is really sad, but the color, the, the shade of purple she was wearing, the Victorians used when they were in half mourning. Right. And I did wonder whether that was supposed to signify she was in mourning or just somebody thought she looked nice in purple. Maybe. Well, she That's got it off later. later. Yeah, she wore white later. So. Yeah, sorry. She wore a white dress later, didn't she? <laughs> she she's not in purple later. No. Oh, right. She took it off. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, and then, then this exchange that... Cause she's oh, going, wonderful. Yeah, and she says, it's all too complicated for me. Ooh, but she's there's already, a lot of wincing in the room at that point. She's already solved it. Well, well that's the thing. Yeah. Say, she's yeah. already proved her point. Yeah. Because yeah. he said he's looking for this man, Jaeger. And she said, oh, but... And he's called her, but Jaeger's German... German for hunter. hunter. Yeah. Yeah. So she's already proved that yeah. she's sufficiently intelligent. Yeah. So, but, but then she plays the it's all the, too complicated for me. It's yeah. back into the dominis, a domicity part. Doesn't and it? there's a yeah. there's a pause of about two seconds. Mm-hmm. And, well, we all winced at that. And we? then he yeah. says to her, "Shall we retire?" Uh, yes. And we all went, "Ooh." <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, he likes that. Clearly, she was going to take her marbles upstairs. Yeah. And now, now we cut back to the pond. Um, where Derek Francis has got his model ship out now. Mm. Yeah. And this is Mr. Dixon mm-hmm. of uh, Torpedo fame. And then there's this line, I think he's interested in, in rather more than birds. <laughs> well, no, because you've, you've skipped a bit, haven't you? I have, Cause, but yeah. Because Jonathan Pride goes to see him and says, you're being watched. Watched. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, and he said, oh, Derek Francis says, oh, he's, he's probably just a bird watcher. Yeah. And Jonathan Pride says, he's, well, he's, he's more than, yes, he's more than birds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You need to give it some context. Okay. Right, okay. Otherwise, it just sounds odd. And then we get the point of view shot, which is a binocular overlay. Oh, That's the that thing that TV and film does. Yeah. 
And if you've got two circles on your binocular overlay, it means you haven't adjusted your binoculars right. Because mm. the point is that you just end up with one circle if you've got on. Otherwise, your eyes are too close together or something, <laughs> you know. Uh, but yes, um, but now we're at the Admiralty and they're worried about um, submarine fleets if there's a war with Germany. Beards mm. and tashes. Are yeah, they, you they, said there's a lot know. of beards in this yes. and Thames has got a good... Got, got a good, good beard record. Good beard record, yes. They make up artists. Even the women, beard, yes. yes. But now Cyril Shap sort of mooches on outside, mm-hmm. and you said, Warren, uh, what is it on this o- on this sort of OB filming where you've got bright sunshine the moment somebody comes through a door? Oh, there's terrible shadowing, isn't there? They, mm. they drench it with the poor. Uh, the poor actor's drenched with the, the lighting from the blooming arc lamp. Isn't well, it? not only can you see it in his glasses, yeah. but there's like signs on door on like um, sort of brass plaques and things yeah. like that, which really reflect that sort of stuff. But yes, yeah, so off off Cyril goes, um, and and there we get and there we get uh, Figgis and Mister Ploppy, don't we? <laughs> yes. yes, as we said, as a uh, as Bill Wallace. Uh, <laughs> and James Bolam, mm-hmm. who are assistants uh, to Mr. Dixon. To, to Mr. Dixon, yes. And the, he's making them wait in the hall. Yeah, yeah the, the hall of the outside the office. And you said yeah. Warren about the the tiles on yeah. the wall were, were, were quite nice. Oh, right. the tiles. Oh gosh, sorry. I was going to pull just, your page just over. Just turn me page. We'll do these. <laughs> I've only got one hand. Thank you. Um, you said about the tiles on the wall were yeah. stained. Yeah, you, you, but they uh, they were they were stained oddly. They were they weren't stained in any kind of order, no. which gave it a natural aging. So it looked real. Some place, some dramas, you would just get it made of a right hash off, but it looked very good actually. Actually, the full the full dressing for the sets were really really good. They were really small sets made up of about four or five really tiny sets, mm. but they were dressed really well. Mm. Everything there was functional, and it was in a room, not for just pure decoration, but everything in there was in the room, especially um, Derek France's room, yeah. was in mm. the, in that room for a reason. Everything looked as though it should be there. Yeah. There was yeah. no... There was of... no things that, that sort of stood out. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, uh, it, it seems that um, we get the implication that Figgis and Mr Ploppy are up to some shady business. Yes. I must stop saying Figgis and Mr Ploppy. <laughs> But yeah, Derek Francis is working on plans for the torpedo, yes. and they've yeah. got to. Um, they've been working on them. Well, they assist him. They yes. do the draw, yes. the yeah. drawings and things. Yeah, the lackeys, aren't they? They're yeah. the runner boys. Yes. Yeah. But uh, yes, uh, more arc lights, mm-hmm. and then uh, another dodgy bloke with a beard and hat turns yes. up. And says no more spying. Yeah. But did you notice the people with the lighter beards are the goodies, and the ones with the darker the big, beard? heavy beards are the heavy uh, beards are the bad yes. people. Yes. All right, okay. that's because they're foreigners. Oh, oh yes. yes, there was a lot of that, wasn't yes. there? But yes. this is this yeah. is uh, Ivanov, isn't mm. it, Mr. Ivanov, who's over the secret police? Yes, or so, or some, Russian secret police, or some such. It's um, not from the bow, actually, Russian secret police. Mm. Mm. But um, apparently, gentlemen don't spy on each other. <laughs> a, a, a no, they get the lackeys to do it for them. To uh, our lords and masters, mm-hmm. so uh, that's why they want Johnson Pride to uh, to do it to do it for mm-hmm. them. And now I've, we've just written down uh, at home with uh, with Figgis mm-hmm. um, <laughs> as, as a rendition of Daisy Daisy from mm-hmm. his sister, yes, who's looking slightly underdressed, as yeah. we say. 
Let's say his sister is a very friendly girl. Yeah. And leave it at that. I like to use the word easy. Yes. <laughs> uh, they can afford a Mr. Kipling's Manor House fruitcake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were just sitting on the table. Um, what's this? Don't you start fiddling now. <laughs> with, a, with his stick. Oh, right. Oh, he's okay. fiddling with his yeah. knob. Don't, don't on the touch end his stick. stick yeah. Wasn't yeah. It? yeah. His stick will be a very important plot point later. A plot point. A, a plot, plot point. A ploppy point, yes. The, the, the other thing with, is with the pace of this, because mm. it, it, it picks up gradually before you realise it's actually travelling along quite a pace. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. And with with all sort of um, television production of this, this era, it can be transcended onto the stage, yeah. so there is a lot of dialogue, yeah. more than action. But it still doesn't slow the process of telling the story down you, here got, at all. It's got really a fair well. number of fairly short scenes, yeah. I think. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of cutting back and forth. And it's multi-camera as well. Yeah. But um, now we get the barrel organ out for the, <laughs> for the street scene, <laughs> don't we? And Cyril Shapps um, has got a cane with a knob on the end. Yeah. And they swap. Is, which they swap is, which knob- is the same as James Bowen. They swap canes. I was going to say they swap knobs then. <laughs> Swapping knobs in the middle of the street. Yeah. It's the equivalent of the 20th century that's swap um, bags and briefcases or around, newspapers yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so the, the, the plans um, for the torpedo I've are been, missing. I'm missing. They've been still. And Warren, you said this was. It's almost like it's a Victorian whoops apocalypse. Do you mean the TV version? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Where they're all right, okay. That's interesting. Where that. they're but, after the quark bomb. <laughs> oh yes, but uh, we said he's uh, got a sort of John Steed look as Mister Pride, mm. doesn't he? With yes, his sort of coat and his got hat, a bowler hat on. He cuts yes. quite a dash. Doesn't he does he? quite quite cut mm. quite a dash. And yes. you said he's got a lovely voice. I think he has a wonderful, wonderful delivery. It's in very this. very soothing. He's in, yeah. and he doesn't at any point have to shout. To no. make his point, it, it's 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 gentle, it's smooth, mm. and it wouldn't raise your blood pressure if you were in a difficult situation. No, he sort of yeah, he's, he he's he's very sort of he's got a good authority. Yeah, there's I no think. good gads and all that. No, kind of there's thing. no overacting. No, not no. at all. I mean, because there is um, an episode of the Bible to Sherlock Holmes later in the series with Donald Sindon yeah. and. Mm. Um, oh, no, no. Michael Bates? Michael Bates, yeah, and it's that who can outfruit each other. I, I, it's the most over-the-top <laughs> acting you've ever seen. <laughs> was that a bowl of fruit episode? Yes, it? just yeah. But uh, Pride describes himself as an inquiry agent rather yes. than a detective because yeah. he doesn't think um, Scotland, Scotland Yard would like that <laughs> no. as a description. Uh, but he intends to prove that the plans are still on the premises, doesn't mm-hmm. he? Um, and then he goes into a different room. Yes, he a wants, special room. He wants special to know there's room. a room opposite the office, and, and Dixon says that's his private sitting room. Mm. And he says to him, I, "I will need the use of your private sitting room." And what's mm. the decor in here? It's describe um, the room to the to the listeners. It's uh, drapes. There's it, a lot of it's a lot of velvet. Dark. Yeah, it's quite dark. It's a lot of Chinese sort of pictures and things. An interesting um, figurine. Yes, there's a little figurine that's some. As you can lift the skirt up on. Yes. 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 What's, what's in the drawers, though? He finds a, a photo album. Well, I was going to say, it? shagging parlour, isn't yes. it? There's a whip, isn't there? A whip. Yeah, I thought there was a whip. A whip. Yeah, yeah. Takes, I mean, it comes only for a few seconds. He just yeah. looks at it and puts yeah. it back yeah. again. But yeah. he, finds, he, he finds, finds this photograph album. And this is my one 
annoyance with this episode, and this is a thing that television does for the Victorian era that doesn't really work, is the photographs. Because if you look at Victorian yeah. photographs, they're very staged mm-hmm. and very actually. I suppose yeah. I suppose it is Victorian still because they mention Her Majesty, don't mm. they? Yeah, they're very staged. They're very the people were very still and stiff because it took a long while to expose it. Be in that um, and the picture he finds is a little more intimate than that. Yeah. It's, I'm not um, quite sure you could do that. Almost what the butler saw, isn't yes. type photo. I like yes. the way he just sort of raises an eyebrow yeah. when he sees it. Um, but, yeah, um, he undoes the knob on, on the cane, and mm. inside is a copy of the plans for the torpedo. No, it's not a copy of the plans. It is the plans. It is the plans. Yeah, which are on... All right, which are on... Well, we've described it as either tracing paper yeah. or school lavatory paper, yeah. the yes. old shiny sort. Which is sort. basically yeah. the same, same thing. Stuff, yeah. But apparently um, Mr. Dixon uh, entertains girls who need a, a few bob. Yes. Two at a time. Two at a time, <laughs> apparently. Yeah. Dirty old dog. Just, just the thought of Derek Francis <laughs> with the two ladies on the go at once. Yeah. One on each knee. Yeah, okay. Uh, but yeah, Jane... my aunt Dolly would have done it for nothing. Yeah, yeah <laughs> she'd do anything for nothing. Yeah, yeah, cow. Uh, but James Bowler <laughs> is made to write a letter to Mr. Yes. Hunter. Yes. Or Mr. Yeager, as he's also known, <laughs> and he does proper ink writing. Yeah. Yes. Because you have to dip the nib into the ink a couple mm. of times, and then write it, and then dip the nib in the ink again, because yeah. obviously it runs out of ink quite quickly. And you were waiting for it to get blotted at the end. Yes, it was. And excited. it got it got blotted. It got blotted. I was you were happy very pleased with that. With that yes. <laughs> but uh, Cyril Shat gets a knock on the door mm. and it's Mr. Ivanov. Miss Ivanov. Uh, Ivanov. 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 Ivanov know what you're talking about. Okay, carry on. Oh. Go on. And uh, he says uh, about how he's got mysterious nuts. Doesn't he? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or did I, I miss him? Have you received a mysterious? Uh, have you received the mysterious nuts? Yes. I think he means note, <laughs> but the accent's all over the place. It's a very cold Russian accent. It's fantastically cold, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. But um, then we get a brilliant zoom on Jonathan Pride. Yeah. Don't we? Mm. Like the camera runs down the road. They, run they picked up the camera and ran at yeah. him. It's like, it's like Joker's world all over again. <laughs> oh dear, yeah. And you said, Warren, um, there's a candlestick phone about the dial face. Yeah, there's no dial face, but now I've thought about that, and they would have, in those days, they'd have had to go on through the operator to get so a certain number. So you just pick it up and you just ask. pick it up. Yeah, yeah you pick yeah. it up and you say, "What? I want Whitehall one, two, three, or whatever." Yeah. yeah. But Pride goes and finds Cyril Shapps deaded in his sort of. Yes. Well, I suppose it's he's a sort of attic or upper room. Attic room, room yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's covered in claret as well. A bit of Kensington is. there, wasn't and it's, there? It's a proper colour claret. It's not it that is. horrible bright red oh, that you get no. sometimes. That's totally unrealistic. And mm. to Mr. Ivanov, who's yes. got the most amazing sleeves. Yes. <laughs> big hairy ones. Yes. No wizard sleeves there. He's, he's got no. a big furry. Cuffs, isn't he? You said he makes his arms look really. He makes his arms look because the cuff is so big; it's about three quarters from his wrist, almost up to his elbow. Almost isn't it? makes it's not his quite. arms look. Doesn't he's got make baby his arms, arms. look short. <laughs> and the brilliant insult of "you swine." <laughs> yes, it's terribly British. Terribly British. Yes. But um, I'm surprised no one called him a cad and a bounder. Yes. <laughs> but he he sort of protected basically because this is. Yes. A, this oh, is a, yeah. a diplomatic incident. Well, we should say he's, he's got a gun on, on Jonathan Pride, yes, but yes. the, the, the uh, cavalry turns up just at the right time. Yes. He does discharge his firearm. He does discharge his firearm into the door, yes. Can you turn me page again, please? Mm. <laughs> Thank you. 
That's just we, to we prove we have got notes. We, we, we could have organised this better. Never mind. Um, yeah, they don't want basically a diplomatic incident, no. do no. they? No, they don't want Her Majesty's government and His Imperial Majesty's government to be yes. in. Yes, in. because the country is full of foreigners already. Yes. <laughs> it was a great yes. emphasis There's a load of muttering that, about yes. how you can't trust anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially if you've got beards, yeah. Mm. Um, but back home in Jonathan Bride's tiny, tiny room. In his little living room, sitting yeah. room. Um, mm. he's, he, uh, he gets a visit. Yes. Oh, he's having coffee with he's his wife. He's having coffee. He, he's now took a purple thing on. Oh, he's got a white dress on now. Yeah. Mm. And, Very uh, serverland. Mm. Yes. Mm. Along come, uh, who is it? Um, the, the, Admiral, the Admiralty. Yes, the cat. Well, I think it's the, the first sea lord. Yeah. And or if it's not the first sea lord, it's somebody related to him. And, and Captain Flack. Harris. Yeah. yeah. RN. And, and Gillo, by the looks of it. Mm. Gillow Pat. David King. David King is Gillow. Yes. Mm. So he's perhaps not the first sea lord, but he's somebody in the Admiralty. Can I just throw something in before Mm. we go any further with that? Yeah. Do you think this is all shot continuously? Because it looks, it has the feelings that it has been shot. Because the gap in which Jacqueline's got time to go and get changed, Mm. they got to make up Cyril. Yeah. So do you think they shot it as live? Because it comes across as shooting as live. I don't know. It's 71. Um, I know they use um, so you know we're not recording, but it 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 has that feel of Shotter's life. We're n- we're not sort of in in the point where editing's that necessarily mm. um, complicated, is it? So possibly is yeah, eighth of November, November seventy one. So. I wonder if they did it in order yeah. rather than all yeah, over the place. It's funny if you sort of start at the beginning why, and go all the way through. That's probably why the sets aren't too huge. Yeah. Because then you can have them all set up. Yeah. You just go from one to the mm. other. I mean, without sort of knowing the recording schedule, I and can't really say. It's but. just the flow seems so natural. Yeah. I know that's through the editing, but some early 70s stuff can clearly be seen to be shot out of order. I mean, if you nip out all the OB stuff, yeah. how much material are you going to have to record? About 40 minutes? 40, oh, 40 minutes. minutes. So you could, do that. you could do that, couldn't you? You could do it With in a couple of hours. Yeah, yeah, you could do a week's rehearsal as usual. Yeah, if you've got it tightly rehearsed, yeah. it's not impossible. Yeah. It's, it's probably a thing of, that you, you know, you do it between 7 and 9 or 7 and yeah. 10, like mm-hmm. they did with Doctor Who. Yeah. I but digress anyway. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. But they basically say that they're... It's been done at Tenning's Lock. Yeah, they're... Mm. they're, they're, they're Sort of impressed with the way Pride handled it. Mm. Yes. Um, and would he consider taking on more cases? And he's not keen. No. It's no. a wonderful sort of end line that he prefers crime yeah. as it's more, more honest. honest. Yeah. But there you go. I, I, I enjoyed that. Yes. You know, yeah. so. And it's, it's it seems a strange one to pick to, to watch in tribute to Jacqueline Pierce mm, because yeah. she's not in it that much. Well, but so when she is in it, she's quite an important character. Yeah. yeah. And she does what she needs to do very well. And I, I think it. You know, you remember that she's in it. Yes. yes. That's the thing. You don't mm. forget because we, we said, oh, there's one with Jacqueline Pearson. And yeah. I, I hadn't realised how little she had to do. But yeah. she clearly made an impact on me yes. from the first time I saw it. Because yeah. yeah. I didn't, I didn't, you know, yeah. have to rack me brains right. to think that she was in it. Well, we looked at what we could do in tribute to Jacqueline Pearson. We didn't want to do Blake Seven because that was too obvious. Yes. Yeah. She's in an episode of the Zoo Gang or in some episodes of the Zoo yeah. Gang. I've never seen Zoo Gang. But... To be honest, I couldn't find it, and we haven't seen it enough to do it, really. And as as we said, we've been meaning to do Rivals of Sherlock Holmes for ages. But but if you look through sort of the 70s, up until she joins the cast of uh, Blake Seven, she genuinely 
turns up quite regularly on both channels. Yeah, yeah in all sorts yeah. of things. Yeah. Yeah. She just does the little odd parts here and there, doesn't she? So, yeah. yeah. But let's just briefly say about some of the names involved with this yes. series. Because yeah. I think Rivals of Sherlock Holmes is a series we could certainly return to for oh, some we, of these. I, I think we probably will. Yeah. Absolutely. We will. Mm-hmm. So you've got Jonathan Alwyn and Lloyd Shirley as mm-hmm. producer and exec producer. Yes. Um, Hugh Green mm-hmm. is quoted as creative consultant. He, he, I think he advises on what stories to yeah. use because there is a book. You, you've got the books, the books haven't you? Yeah, yeah, and he's, he's credited on the books. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he sort of but, creates it. But yeah, series editor is George Markstein. Now, yes. if you've got Markstein in, in any kind of production, you know yeah. it's gonna you're going to get quality yeah. Yeah, and, and it's going to be weird. Weird, yeah. yeah. So you, you've got some heavyweight names here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And again, I think it is one of those series that sadly has been forgotten. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And whenever somebody on Twitter discovers it, which there have a few people have recently... They always they go. Love it. They always Everybody go. Oh, this loves is really it. good. Yeah, why haven't I seen this it's before? It's akin to the uh, the, uh, the Barlow and Watt, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's been forgotten about. But at least this but is available. Yes. Yeah. So you know, they, they, there's something there, but it's never had a sort of satellite repeat that I'm aware of. No, I, no. I don't think no, so. I've never seen it on anything. I'm not aware of it. So. You know, tell us if we're wrong. But mm. another good choice by network. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh yeah. I mean, and, and again, it all exists, and mm-hmm. it's they're doing a combined box set now, don't they? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. again, so many good actors there is, there really just is. pop up from week yes. to week. And this is the yeah. wonderful thing about 70s television, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, because people, d- there was no preciousness about no. being in no. an, one episode of something. Mm. Basically, if you were offered the job, you took it. You're on screen, you're yeah. seen, you're versatile as an actor. And it's period. People love period, mm. don't they? Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, thank you for that, Yes. Yeah. everyone. So, yeah, there you are. Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, the case of the Dixon Torpedo. Yes. Well, we're seeking it. It is. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you to Warren. Warren. Yes, I remember. Thank you, Warren. I remember who it was. Yes. yes. Yes, we had much fun doing that article. <laughs> yes, indeed. Mm. All, all good fun. Yes. But, uh, you just wanted to say something about Jonathan I, Pride, I though, did, didn't you? I did because I've got we've got physical copies of the Rival of Sherlock Holmes books, mm. and I've got it on um, my ebook on my Kindle as well. And I looked at it this morning, and it doesn't actually star Jonathan Pride or well, feature. Jonathan mm. Pride. It features um, Martin Hewitt, okay, who's his partner in it. Right. And Jonathan Pride is actually an invented detective for the television series only. He's not um, one in a short story. So right. they've made him up for that particular episode okay. for whatever reason. I'd love to know why. But there are some Martin Hewitt ones. He's in The Affair of the Tortoise. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's played by Peter Barkworth. Yeah. And he's also in um, the case of Laker Absconded. 
right. and uh, Jonathan Pride is also in that one as well. Ooh. So, so he's literally... He's literally just made up for the He's telly. a made-up detective. He's a made-up detective. Like yes. cake is a made-up drug. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, but there you so, go. Yeah, so whether they originally planned to have uh, Martin Hewitt in it and mm. Peter Buckworth wasn't available... Or whether they decided that he was already doing two stories and to have him in three was too much. Yeah. I don't know. Well, that's but, yeah. a bit of a mystery, then. It is a bit of a mystery. And mm. if anybody can enlighten us why, it's, it's Jonathan Pryde, not Martin Hewitt. Please tell us. Please tell us. We'd love to know. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. That was episode 26 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Warren Cummings and Martin Holmes. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, The Case of the Dixon Torpedo was by Stuart Hood, adapted from the story by Arthur Morrison. And the producer was Jonathan Orwin. In Round the Archives, there were many articles, but none of them were as strange as the one about the rivals. Oh, oh, do you want to do that again? Oh, yes. <laughs> Where are we going to go from? The start. Okay. In the articles of Round the Archives, there were many articles. Remember, <laughs> Jesus, oh, no, stick. <laughs> Have you written yourself a... I should write it down. In, in a nut. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> and now here they are, the most daredevil group of daffy riders to ever bump their gums in the wacky podcasts, competing for the title of the world's wackiest podcaster. The articles are approaching the editing stage. First is the Isle of Sky interview connected with Fiona Allen. Next, Terry Malloy and Jenny in the convention foyer. Manoeuvring for position is the John Chalice special. Right behind in the written archives mob in their... And now, here they are, the most daredevil group of daffy riders to ever bump their gums in the wacky podcasts. Competing for the... And now, here they are, the most daredevil group of daffy writers to ever bump their gums in the wacky podcasts, competing for the title of the world's wackiest podcaster. The articles are approaching the editing stage. First is the Isle of Sky interview, conducted with Fiona Allen. Next, Terry Malloy and Jenny in the convention foyer. Manoeuvring for position is the John Chalice special. Right behind is the written archives mob with their bulletproof facts. And there's ingenious painter Martin Holmes with his converted logos. Oh, and here's the lovely Lisa Parker, the glamour gal of gassing on the sofa. Next, we have the wife in space team with the Perryman spouses, Neil and Sue. Lurching along is Michael Leach with his looty looties. And then his loots. (laughs) 
Turbo terrific. Okay. Right. Hey, Warren. Yeah, I've been all silent. Rivals with Sherlock Holmes. What am I looking this up on? IMDb. There were many strange nuts. <laughs> 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 Who is it? It's so appropriate that. <laughs> what season is this? One. 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 The Rivals of so. Sherlock Holmes. 1971. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, nuts. Who is it? Mm. Uh, you have little fluffy feet. I know. Mm. Yeah. Not that fluffy. That's taught him. Uh. <laughs> Fluffy, fluffy. I like it. You've got fluffy sleeves. There we go. Right, so Raph de la Tour as Prince Ablo- Ab- Ablog- Oblonsky. Oblonsky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't say it now. Yeah, I can se- say it before. The Russian bloke. He's yeah. senior judge. Yeah. Yeah, so is, he's he the one that not- is he the nodding one? Well, they all nod. Because they all go. Mm-hmm. He's the one that actually speaks, isn't he? Yeah. 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 Like the Duracell bunnies. They just don't stop nodding. Right, okay, there we go. Okay. Okay, girls and boys. What's Michael Paul been in? He's the secret policeman. Hey? Michael Paul. Michael Paul. Under Cyril Shaps. Ivanoff. Under who? Cyril Shaps. Did you say snaps? I did. (laughs) Um, He was in Whoops He was in Whoops Apocalypse, Warren. Was he? Politburo member. Ah. He was a member in the Whoops Apocalypse. Hmm. He's in quite a lot. Mm. Nothing. But um, not much that we've got. He's in Quite a Mass in the Pit from 1967. Older Workman. Older Workman, uncredited. No, not much that we've got. Oh, in the on the film in the film. Yes. Uh-huh. All creatures great and small. Okay. Captain Polly Noff in Barks and Bites. Yeah. Borgers, two thousand eleven. Is Pope Innocent? Oh. Right. Okay. Right. Come right. Along right. Ready. Yeah. Okay. Ready to be. <laughs> 